0: Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly.
1: Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence.
2: Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Canzano's Baldface Truth.
1: Yesterday on the show... We had an interview with Kalen DeBoer, the Washington football coach. And, you know, I pride myself on getting great guests on this show. The very first show at the time, we had a big lineup on the opening day. We had Peter Jacobson. He was the very first guest uh, of this radio program, Peter Jacobson. And then we had President Obama on the show same day. We set the bar high. Over the years, it's been Mike Tyson. It's been... Uh, commissioners in the Big 12 and the SEC and the Pac 12. Uh, we had uh, Adam Silver on this show once upon a time. We've had uh, multiple uh, coaches uh, from Mario Cristobal, obviously, and Chip Kelly and Mark Elfrich and Mike Riley and Dennis Erickson and Jonathan Smith and Gary Anderson and you know. But I, I pride myself on getting around the Pac 12 conference and talking to a variety of different coaches and. And, and I like getting to know these coaches outside of this show. And I went back. I always do this after interviews, uh, particularly with bigger guests. I went back and listened to the interview. And I go back and I try to listen to, like, you know, what would I ask differently? What was the question I missed? And often the guest is going to lead me to the next question. Like there was a point. I don't go into an interview with anything scripted. But there was a point on yesterday's show with Kalen DeBoer that, um, you know, I had written down a couple things as he started to talk, you know, and I wrote down, you know, kids with a question mark. I wrote down his athletic director with a question mark. And uh, I was waiting sort of for for Kalen DeBoer to kind of open the door for those things. And we got on the topic of his two children. He has two daughters. He has a daughter in the sixth grade. He has a daughter who plays uh, high school softball. And the sixth grader is a – is a equestrian. I don't know if it's equestrian or if she just likes to ride horses. But the bottom line being that Kalen DeBoer is not just a football coach at Washington. He is a dad and he is a husband and he's got a kid who plays softball. And any of us who have kids who play youth sports, I think, can relate a little bit to the tug of war that goes on inside your heart when you're watching your kid compete. I know I do, and I come at it from a little different perspective because I do think I have a broader perspective on what, like, high-level athletes, high-level college and pro athletes look like and feel like. And I do think it becomes very easy if you uh, don't have that perspective uh, to to lose your way a little bit. I even have family members, you know, extended family members who've got kids of their own who will talk to me about their kids and I hear them saying things and I'm thinking to myself as they're talking, I hear them talking about their kids and they start talking about the scholarship offers that so-and-so has on their team and how this player is the best, you know, and I, and to me, it always comes back to one thing. It comes back to like, what are we looking to get out of youth sports and what are as parents, are we looking for youth sports to create and foster in our own children? And for a lot of us, it's not a scholarship. And, I thought it was interesting yesterday to hear Kalen DeBoer talk about being a dad who has a horseback riding sixth grader and a high school softball player who, uh, uh, you know, he throws batting practice to. And it was interesting to me to ask him the question of what he does on the way home uh, after a game. Like, what is that car ride home like? And I know from my own experience, you know, I had a dad who played – high level baseball. He was a professional baseball player. He was in AAA with the Mets in nineteen sixty nine. They go on to Miracle Mets, win the World Series. He had teammates throughout the minor leagues like Nolan Ryan and Jerry Kuzman and Tom Seaver. You know, he's in spring training. He's you know he's he's with the guys in spring training. And I had that perspective myself and I had my own dad and there were times I'm gonna be honest with you when I was a kid where my dad would come to my baseball games And there wasn't a lot said on the ride home. And, in fact, during the games, my dad wouldn't sit with the other parents, and I never understood why. He would go down the right field line. He would hang out, you know, just beyond the first baseman along the fence, on the other side of the fence, and he's just kind of watching from that vantage point. Or he'd go down the third baseline, and he'd do the same thing, kind of hang out just beyond, like, where – the you know the edge of the infield stopped and he would kind of have that vantage point and he wouldn't say anything. There were also times that he was in the outfield. He'd go you know if we're playing a road game they had a stadium had a cyclone fence or whatever he might he might sit beyond the outfield fence and just watch from beyond the fence and and I never quite understood why until I talked to my dad about it years later as I'm an adult with kids and I heard it in Kalen DeBoer's interview yesterday on the show and if you haven't heard it. You can grab the podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and get it because it's moments like that, if you miss an interview like that, that I really hope you go back. But I wrote it today at johnconzano.com as well. If you subscribe to me there and you're reading me there, you know that you know college football coaches can be maniacs. Mario Cristobal, great example of that. I think he's an extreme example of how maniacal coaches can be. But Kalen DeBoer, when I asked him, you know, what's that ride home like? And he downplayed it. And he said, I'm not here to coach. I'm not here to say, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? He said, anytime I go watch my kids do what they like to do, it's a big deal. And I thought that was really grounding. And it really humanized him in a way that, you know, we all know he's a human. But we don't see that side of Kalen DeBoer when he's coaching Washington football. And if you're an Oregon State fan, you're watching him coach on the other sideline. Or you're an Oregon fan, you you see him on the other sideline. And I had a lot of people in the comment section uh, and subscribers who are Ducks or Beaver fans who were like, I don't want to like this guy. I don't want to like him. And I know what that's about. Like, you know, you you want your team to be, it's you guys against the world. I get it. And it's it's the same mentality when when we bring up players like Patrick Beverly or, Russell Westbrook, or we bring up players that are on the other team. Dylan Brooks, great example of that. He's your guy. He's on your team. You love him. Uh, He's on the other team. You absolutely hate him. And so I think with Kalen DeBoer, you know, it was interesting to hear him talk and humanize him a little bit and hear him talk about, you know, the pressures of being a coach and whatnot. But I was left, like today when I woke up, I listened to the interview this morning for the second time, and it just struck me; it hit me like a bag of bricks. Like we've been talking, I think, for years on the show about the work-life balance that we all are. And I think American culture really struggles with. I really do think that there are other parts of the world that get it, um, get it much, much better, uh, perspective-wise. And, and as Americans, I think we wake up on a treadmill and we just start running. And I think for people who work, who are, if you're the breadwinner in your family, or maybe you're a, you know, a household that has two people that are working, you understand you're on that treadmill and you're running. And I think sometimes you get so focused on running on that treadmill, and I'm guilty of this as well, like that you can't look left. You can't look right. You fear that if you do, you're going to fall off the treadmill. Or if you slow down, you're going to fall off the back of the treadmill. I don't know if you've ever done that. I've been in the gym. I've been in the gym with a, uh, with a sweatshirt on, and I'm, and I'm jogging on the treadmill, and I go, you know, I need to, I need to stop and take this sweatshirt off. I, you know, I'm getting too warm here. And uh, I've actually tried to take the sweatshirt off while I continue to jog. Doesn't go well. If you step off the side of the treadmill even by an inch, you're hosed. You're in trouble. Believe me, it happened to me. Uh, flew off the back of the treadmill, spun around. I got the sweatshirt over my head, can't see anything. It's ridiculous. So I think we're in this cultural time in american history and i think it really did start probably a generation ago but it man is it picked up and i don't know if there will be a correction unless the correction comes within each of us but i think we're in this time period where it's about more and more and more and keep running and stay on the treadmill so i think it's really interesting to look at football coaches who we all view as maniacal 70 hour work weeks 90 hour work weeks sleeping at the office Hell, Mario Cristobal, he came on this show once, and he told the story of his uh, offensive line coach, Alex Mirabell. You know, Cristobal goes to the University of Oregon football parking garage 5.30 in the morning during the season. It's like a Tuesday or Wednesday. You know, it's game week. He arrives at 5.30 in the morning. He, he notes that there's another car parked in the garage, and it belongs to Alex Mirabell, his friend and the O-line coach. And Cristobal doesn't say anything to Maribel. He just notes to himself that you know that sob is already here, and I'm not. He's outworking me. And the very next morning, Cristobal told us that you know he set his alarm so he could get to the office at 4:50 in the morning. Like, what's the point? Just stay at stay at stay at school if you're going to do that. Um, Mike Riley. I talked to Mike Riley just a couple weeks ago as I was writing about his daughter, who uh, has opened up a uh, a uh, antique store, or a thrift shop in. Downtown Corvallis. Uh, the shop's called 1972, if you're ever there. Uh, but yeah, it's on Madison, I think. And uh, I, I popped into it, in fact. Um, you know, his daughter, Kate, is running this shop, and I end up writing about it. And I end up on the phone with Mike Riley, and I happen to be at a track meet and watching my 8-year-old run. Riley calls me. It's a Saturday morning, bright and early. He's got a game to coach that day. coach of the New Jersey Generals. And we're talking about how maniacal work is. And I'm taking this work call, so I'm guilty of it as well. Well, I'm supposed to be like watching my kid compete. My kid was at the long jump pit, preparing to long jump, and she's going to get three jumps. It's going to happen in a matter of like 90 seconds. And Mike Riley's on the phone with me, and he's telling me, hey, if you're not careful, this uh, uh, football can be all-consuming. And I tell him back, I said, it's not just football. You know, American work can be all-consuming. I don't care if you are working as somebody who refinishes hardwood floors or if you're working as somebody who's a sports columnist and radio show host or you're a bus driver or a race car driver. I think it it can be all-consuming in any form or fashion. Uh, But Kalen DeBoer, you know, spending that time or talking about his family, important stuff, Mike Riley talking about how important his daughter's relationship is with with, uh, his mother, his wife, Dee, her mother, Uh, Mario Cristobal talking about his kids shooting the uh, Nerf dart guns when he gets home from work and he gets to see them for a half hour before they go to bed. It's precious. It's why I like so much when we hear Dan Lanning, Oregon coach. You know, he likes to read with his kids or he likes to, uh, you know, hang out and play board games with them on a weekend. And, you know, Lanning texted me a picture not that long ago. He, He and the family were making dinner. And he texted me a picture and, you know, of what they were making. And I loved it. Like I didn't report it. I didn't, I didn't post it on Instagram. I was just like, you know, he's a real person outside of this football stuff that we all think is so important. And Jonathan Smith, he came on this show and he talked about jumping on the trampoline in the backyard with his kids. I love that image of Oregon State's intense, highly focused football coach on the trampoline with his kids in the backyard. And, in fact, he's got a kid now. I think who's a freshman or a sophomore in high school, who's a pretty good baseball player. And you know the 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 thought of Jonathan Smith, you know, at a game, just being a parent. I think it's good perspective. I think it's important for us all to hear that. Important for us, especially because we view football coaches as people who give up their identity. They give up the you know the rest of their life to be a all in maniacal transfer portal NIL year-round, spring football, always recruiting, always selling, meeting with donors, media interviews like, you know, the one he did on this show yesterday. And yet Kalen DeBoer's comment is, quote, I'm taken away from them quite a bit as a football coach. Think about that. Are you taken away from your family quite a bit? Uh, What areas could you draw better boundaries in? Because I don't think coaches necessarily need to sleep at the office. I know John Gruden kind of made that fashionable, at least in this era. Dick Vermeil burned himself out once upon a time as a football coach. Remember Dick Vermeil just kind of going, just burning the candle at both ends. But I, li- I rather like when we hear that Kalen DeBoer, you know, has a sixth grader who rides horses and he just likes to go see her do what she loves to do. And I'm okay if Jonathan Smith is knocking off. Uh, on a Thursday night, and saying, "You know what? Uh, the work is done. Let's let's have family night." Because he does that with his coaches. I, I think that's a really important redeeming thing. Uh, we have a great show today, but you know, I always try to start the show with a thought that's on my mind. That's what's on my mind right now, uh, and I think it's super important. Uh, we've uh, we've got guests today. We're going to talk with uh, the Arizona State TV reporter who spoke with Ray Anderson. We're going to talk about Arizona State and Kenny Dillingham. Will they hit the ground running? We'll get a view of the Pac-12 conference continued uncertainty with the ACC being bantered about. Pac-12 fans, are you rubbernecking at that at all? Are you are you uh are you able to sort of see what is happening on the landscape with all the reporting and people shoveling coal trying to trying to uh you know, I think there's some unrest in the ACC footprint certainly. Just like there was some uncertainty in the Pac-12 footprint, but I I just don't buy the gloom and doom like everybody else is is predicting. I think these conferences all need to be healthy and vibrant, and I think ultimately uh, television needs the content as well. And so I don't I don't think it's all going anywhere. At least not in this cycle. Uh, Pac-12 with some big news today. They are uh, now announcing some partnerships with ESPN and Fox. They are going to uh, have kind of an XFL feel when it comes to, um, you know, when it comes to the uh, the uh, production of the ESPN and Fox games this season in college football. They're going to do more sideline interviews in-game with the coaches. They're going to put cameras in the coaching boxes at the stadiums so they can, you know, take you behind the scenes a little bit. Again, it's this, it's this whole movement that we've seen in uh, sports where access – is what everybody wants. And, in fact, the Pac-12 this morning, when they announced it, part of it was, you know, part of their their terminology in announcing it had to do with access. It was called, uh, you know, in-game and pre-game broadcast access. Well, what are we talking about? Well, they're selling out is what they're doing, and I don't blame them. ESPN and Fox and the Pac-12 networks will have in-game interviews with the coaches, pre-game and halftime locker room cameras, no sound on those, just cameras, Coaches and athletes will be wired on the field in the pregame. Select coaches, select athletes. Uh, They will also have uh, additional handheld cameras inside the stadiums. That's all great. I think it's it's going to help viewers feel like they're they're at the game. And you know, we've seen it in baseball. We're watching players getting interviewed during the games now in baseball. It makes the broadcast cooler. I think everybody's trying to do stuff like that. But there's a couple of things in the background of that that i think are worth talking about number 1 is you have you know obviously a push towards television driving the bus and we have seen tv affect kickoff times and i do think it's having an impact at the stadium when it comes to season ticket sales in a lot of places you're you're watching the trends over the last 5 years decline even in the sec and the big 10 but i also think that you know if ESPN and Fox were doing a great job with camera angles and HD broadcasts in the Pac-12. I might feel better about the bells and whistles, but I don't think they've done a good enough job just getting the games crystal clear on your TV set. Like, can I get an amen from you out there? Like, ESPN had the whole fiasco with the satellite truck that I had to dive into, and they finally admitted that, you know, they they had a bad satellite truck that was helping produce the games and it was causing problems with the cameras and that's why your screen was so fuzzy and you know it was just ridiculous so yeah if they could do all if they can do the basic things right i'm good with this and and you know the additional handheld camera on the field is cool but make sure that you have a goal line camera that's a stationary camera first like it's cool to get that handheld oh i'm on the sideline feel as a viewer but i also when oregon state is you know pushing for a first and goal against Washington, and they get an obvious first down, I want a camera to show the officials on the field that, hey, that was a first down. Like, you know, again, uh, it doesn't help anybody if they're not getting it right with replay and on the field and they don't have more than six cameras available. So I would, I'm would, i loving that the Pac-12's trying some new things, but let's make sure that, you know, you take care of the uh, blocking and tackling before you start running the double-reverse Statue of Liberty play that they want to run with all these bells and whistles. So that's just where I stand on that stuff. we got a whole bunch to talk about today. Uh, In the next segment, we're going to Tempe, Arizona. Kenny Dillingham, how has he been received? The poor turnout at the spring game. Is that all on Dillingham, or was it just a logistical nightmare? Are they going to be any good? Everybody's talking about Colorado. That's the first-year head coach that everybody's talking about, Coach Prime. But what about Dillingham and Arizona State? Where do they fit in this conference? We'll talk next with the reporter who's got his pulse, uh, who's got the pulse of Arizona State football and Arizona State athletics. We've got a good show for you today. Leave it right here. Well, there's been a lot of intrigue and a lot of interest in the Pac-12 footprint uh, as it pertains to the media rights deal, possible expansion, all that stuff we have talked over and over about. Uh, A podcaster in uh, Arizona. Speak of the Devils podcast. It's the Arizona State football podcast. Uh, Brad Denny is the host of this podcast. Uh, had Ray Anderson, the Arizona State AD on as a guest. Uh, here was Ray Anderson talking about Arizona State on that podcast.
0: Have there been any discussions you know, internally that, you know, if things you know, with the Pac-12's long-term viability don't necessarily shake out in, in a positive way, that you know, looking at whether uh, other prospective conference homes for Arizona State athletics, we don't have that discussion internally because uh, we are a solid, uh, uh, important member of the Pac-12, uh,
2: uh, Pac-10, Pac-12, uh, and very frankly, we have no discussions. Uh, about other conferences uh, the only discussions we might have is what other conferences uh, are trying to have some of their members come to our conference uh, uh, obviously we talked about San Diego State and SMU and some others so that is uh, uh, clear in those comments but no we've had no internal discussions about ASU going anywhere else because uh, that's very frankly no desire
1: no desire says Ray Anderson Brad Denny uh, works at CBS 5 in Arizona. Also, as I mentioned, hosts Speak of the Devils podcast. Brad is joining us now. Hey, you guys did a great job on that, getting Ray Anderson. Was it difficult to get him, or how did you, you lock him down?
0: Actually, ASU has been really great with the media. We have a, a tremendous amount of access. This is actually the uh, sixth year that I've sat down with Ray for kind of a about this time of the year. I'd like to you know, get his thoughts on kind of the year that was in Sun Devil Athletics, you know, talk about some some uh you know, uh, Pac-12 issues some big picture type stuff. Um, he's always been really accessible, and so uh, this is our our longest conversation over an hour. We and obviously it's a very crucial time for Arizona State uh, athletics as a whole, but of course, you know the conference issues and kind of the, just the changing landscape of uh, college sports in general. So there was there's a lot to, to chop up with uh, with Ray. So uh, ASU as I said does a really good job. is very good, uh, accommodating with us in the media.
1: Yeah, you know, I thought he was strong. He was pretty clear on the idea that. Arizona State, um, you know, is not looking to go elsewhere. Has that been, you know, I know from the Big Twelve footprint, there's been a lot of scuttlebutt about that, but that has that been a topic in your local market, you know, uncertainty around ASU or or not? Uh,
0: from the ASU side of things, uh, you know, everything I've heard is that you know they're very c- still committed to you know being in the in the Pac Ten, Pac Twelve, whatever form that takes out. But one thing that's really interesting is the the fan base is really kind of just over all the Pac-12 drama, you know, they they call it ASU out here, always something university. And it seems like the the conference might be taking a little bit of uh, of that dramatic feel, of course, with everything going on. Uh, And so just in terms of, you know, the the Larry Scott tenure and all the fallout there and just, you know, the uncertain future now that this conference has, the widening gap, you know, the the possibility of a kind of a power two group of eight structure in terms of uh, the national landscape. A lot of uh, folks out here in Arizona are almost kind of looking for anything uh, other than uh, the Pac-10, Pac-12, uh, for you know wherever ASU ultimately lines up. Although I do still think that ASU's uh, best place is uh, with the the conference. And seems that you know from what I'm hearing from you know, my conversations with Ray and other people within the athletic department that uh, you know the, they're committed to the to remaining in this conference in whatever uh, form it takes, and that they they expect it to be especially in the era of the extended, expanded expanded playoffs. Yeah, probably their best bet.
1: You know Arizona State undergoing a coaching change in football and. Uh, herm Edwards, who I loved having on the show i i great interview, fun to talk with, but you know it it just it wasn't getting done with the results what was what do you think the downfall of the herm edwards era was, or maybe how do you how do you explain what happened in that era? Uh,
0: I think it's kind of twofold obviously you have the NCAA investigation because you go back to the off season uh, into the twenty twenty one season. ASU had had a few strong years of recruiting. The kind of the trend line was going slowly but surely going up. Uh, early in his tenure, Herman, and his staff played a lot of freshmen. So heading into the 2021 season, you had arguably the program's most talented roster since the '96 Rose Bowl season. Uh, and then, of course, that summer, the news of the investigation breaks. Recruiting just absolutely screeches to a halt. Coaches are dismissed. That season, you know, it was an eight-win season, which is good historically by ASU standards, well short of. Uh, where the program and the fan base and the community in general really hoped for and just really wasn't able to win kind of uh, the, the hearts and minds over there. A lot of, uh, I think that was kind of a point of no return. But also, and this is something that Ray, uh, I was kind of surprised by his candor in the interview, just knowing how close he was with Herm, is that he laid out that pretty succinctly that this is, was a head coach and a staff that just could not really adapt to the, kind of the, the, mod, the changing landscape of the sport. NAL, the transfer portal, uh, the, you know, adapting to those, you know, obviously the self-inflicted wounds of the investigation and, and those allegations, but just not being able to kind of keep up. And the talent level just kind of dropped off uh, off the table. So uh, just, you know, not being it. And that's why you know, they target a guy like Kenny Dillingham, somebody younger brought some energy and some juice into this program. But when you kind of do the post-mortem on, on the Herm Edwards era and just why after a few promising seasons, it all came crashing down. I think you just look for the inability to adapt and just, you know, I don't want to say necessarily that the game had passed them by, but in terms of what the college game was had become and was becoming, it just wasn't a great fit
3: anymore.
1: We're talking to Brad Denny, who covers Arizona State football for CBS Five, right there in Arizona. Also, uh, he is the host of Speak of the Devils podcast. Kenny Dillingham comes in, very different, big correction, different personality. Um, you know, ball of energy at the uh, introductory news conference. Um, you know, early returns on Dillingham.
0: Very positive. Now, granted, this all comes with the the, the obvious caveat that he hasn't won a game here. But in terms of just these six months that he's been able to – what he's been able to do, uh, I think you've got to give him, like, if you get a letter grade, like an A. I mean, he's put together a pretty impressive staff. A lot of youth, a lot of uh, uh, the recruiting has really kind of turned around. They just landed a four-star defensive back yesterday. They landed a couple of blue chippers to close out 23 on on a really good start in the 24 and 25 classes. Uh, You know, he's overhauled the roster over 40, uh, 45, I believe, newcomers in terms of the transfer portal Uh, and and a lot of talent there. I think you have coaches that have more aggressive philosophies and schemes, and the players have really uh, embraced that. But I think the the number one most crucial thing that he's been able to do early on is kind of ward off the apathy that was really starting to set in uh, with the Sun Devil fan base, the community in general, just as mentioned the last couple of years. Around this program has been really dire, and you just you know it's you know worse when people just aren't you know not liking the things are what uh, that are happening, but they just don't care what what happened. And that, that was a real danger that you know, there's a lot of fans that are just kind of really kind of tuned out. Um, there was a lot of you know, vocal contingent it's like, you're not getting another dollar from me until Herm is gone. Uh, and so just now bringing in a, a, an ASU alum, a guy with ties to the community that you, know, you can see. You, know, you mentioned the introductory press conference. I mean. He was, half a sentence in and he has tears in his eyes because it just means so much to him. So granted that will that ultimately win, win games and, and get ASU to a war or something uh, to, to be determined. But in terms of just kind of, you know, shifting that narrative, you know, stopping the bleeding of, of that, that, of that fan interest and, you know, really kind of, uh, there has been a palpable buzz uh, here in the community. Uh, you know, the, the spring game turnout wasn't necessarily what uh, he was hoping for, but I don't think, you know, with, that was the same day as Pat's run. I think there's some factors there. Ultimately though, there is for the first time probably about two and a half season or two and a half years or so there's actually some excitement about a Sun devil football season
1: yeah, and I think you know sometimes it takes winning games, but sometimes it's just a change in energy and the fan base gets on board. Spring game wasn't a great turnout, but help me out here the you know the the Pat Tillman run was that morning it ends around you know maybe 10 a.m for most people the spring game doesn't start till noon. Uh, I think it was a little bit of a logistical problem there that resulted in a poor turnout but do do you think that was more about apathy or more about hey you're asking too much of thirty thousand people to stick around for a couple hours
0: i think yeah the, the timing I, I i do like that they, they they tried it out um and trying to kind of com- trying to combine both events. I do think that you know they, they learned some valuable lessons that there was you know a couple hours uh gap and of course being in Arizona about that time of year it 's a little warm. So you know, I think you know, perhaps if they had it on kind of a standalone day in the evening, when you know, the spring evenings in Arizona hard top. So if they're able to do that, plus I think you know, just kind of there might be still you know a good segment of the fan base out so there that's in a little bit of wait and see mode. That you know they do like that, the, the direction of the program. That they're you know it's not necessarily kind of a retread coach like ASU has gone with uh, the last couple of hires, um, but still you know just waiting to see that you know what is actually going to. Is this going to be a team that's going to be worth my money? Can they win me back after, you know, being hurt uh, over uh, the last couple of seasons? Uh, so we'll see what they do. I, I do think that, you know, there, there was some disappointment from Kenny. That was that was pretty evident. But I do like that they were trying some stuff. And that's, we have seen that in terms of just various uh, community outreach. And, and, you know, Kenny and, and his staff in the calling activate the Valley in terms of trying to rallying the fan base, business leaders, get them going on the NIL front especially. And just kind of, you know, it's a multifaceted uh, approach that they're trying and you know, that after a couple of years of just a, a staff and a program that really was kind of, you know, the complacency had pretty well set in. This is a, a staff that's aggressive, that's trying things, and if it doesn't work, they're going to learn their lessons. Uh, so ultimately, I think it's going to be a process, but I think, you know, next year we'll see, uh, you know, a, a better turnout and a better situation.
1: Yeah, you know, I think it it's going to be interesting to see Dillingham because, you know, there were some splashier hires than Kalen DeBoer, Last year, but DeBoer won more games than Dan Lanning and was right there with Lincoln Riley in the end. Like, you know, sneaky good hire. I'm curious to see if Dillingham will be able to put that together. Can you talk maybe a little bit about the, you know, the Arizona State gets this sleeping giant, uh, you know, sort of uh, label that gets put on the program? And and everybody always goes, gosh, they should be so good with the population base and proximity to LA and good weather. And uh, what holds Arizona State back?
0: themselves i mean yeah they've, they've there's been so many self-inflicted errors and turn on, on many fronts that was actually one question I, I asked ray during the podcast is just that it's been about six academic years since you know kind of the three high high profile sports of football men's basketball or baseball had finished the season ranked in the top 25 and I and asked me you what know, asu stature power five program the location the things that you mentioned that's working their favor all the resources you know how how is that possible uh, and so that's, that's kind of the million-dollar question that, that's been plaguing this program uh, for decades at this point because you have everything in place uh, to make a run. Now I think you know, with the expanded playoff, ASU's path to getting to that postseason, getting to that next level if they find the right coach, is, is, uh, is better than it has ever been. And so I do think that there's been a lot of just bad decision-making in terms of uh, you know, the, the coaching hires and some of the administrative decisions I think one thing that will be very interesting to track and another question I asked Ray is the level of support from the university for athletics. Uh, one of the things that Ray did mention is that he feels that the Pac-12 needs to place an even greater emphasis on football in order to raise the profile and kind of help uh, the conference, you know, close that gap between some of the other conferences out there. And I think, you know, ASU needs to be near the forefront of that. Obviously, Oregon and Washington are kind of the name brands that you're going to have left here. Uh, starting next season, but I think A- ASU is well-positioned if they make that investment, and I think that they have the, the right man in place uh, as the, head, the football head coach, if they can just kind of finally get in, uh, out of their own way and just, you know, put the necessary resources there, let Kenny cook, and, you know, uh, they hopefully will be able to, you know, get that, that, that giant who's been you know snoozing for 30, 40 years at this point uh, to finally wake up.
1: Yeah, you've got, in your market, you've got the NFL, you've got the NHL, you know, you have Major League Baseball, you've got, you know, major college, you've got basketball, football. Where does Arizona State football rank right now in your mind, Uh, sort of on the hierarchy of sports in that market?
0: I think first and foremost, this is a Phoenix Suns town. uh, I mean, overall, the Phoenix market with so many transplants and, and just, you know, so much of the population, Born elsewhere it's kind of a front runner town i mean if a team gets hot they'll get some 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 uh, support uh but i think you know first and foremost the Suns, you know it's being the long by far the longest ten-year professional franchise here are right there and now along with that i think asu has a special place just with the huge alumni base and just uh you know having you know been established so many decades before um you know the, the nfl nhl and major league baseball arrived so I think if they're able to finally get some consistency instead of, you know, where you get to a point where eight wins is not a, oh, this is a really great season. It's a minimum expectation. I think, you know, like I just remember, you know, I was in high school when Jake Plummer led the 96 team to to the Rose Bowl and just the way that that team was able to kind of capture the collective hearts and minds of the Valley, uh, was really something that I had only been um, kind of eclipsed by what the Suns have been able to do. Even, even the Cardinals' Super Bowl run in 2008, I mean, I, I don't think met that level of what ASU was able to do uh, when they made their Rose Bowl run. So, um, you know, this is kind of just kind of a, a town that ultimately kind will go to, you know, whatever team is playing hot. But, you know, the deeper roots, uh, you know, are, I think we're with, the, were with the Suns and ASU. So if they can finally get to a point where they have – Consistency, where we you know back to think back to 2013, 14 when they had those back-to-back 10-win seasons, you you kind of felt like okay, here we go, this might be something special, but obviously weren't wasn't able to sustain that. Yeah, I think if they are though, and if Kenny does get the resources resources that he needs, then I think that this could be a, a town that's you know full of maroon gold.
1: There is uh, obvious uh, a question out there with Ray Anderson involved. You know, Herm Edwards was his hire, didn't work out. There've been some other issues. It, does he need Kenny Dillingham to be successful to keep his own job, the AD there?
0: I think it's going to be very crucial. Uh, I mean, the ASU has had some you know, great success in other sports, and, which is great. You know, the men's golf program, the men's swim and dive, uh, you know, others. You know, the, the, being able to launch a Division One hockey program a, has been great. But ultimately, as we all know, you know, it's how you are in those revenue sports, especially football, that's going to tell the tale of how successful and healthy your athletic department ultimately is. And I asked uh, the last question in the podcast with Ray is like, what, what was one regret that you've had? And what other lesson that you took away from that? And he says, I've, you know, the regret is not being able to fix football. He mentioned that, you know, he came in and inherited a guy that he didn't hire, but you know, he had five years of the guy that he did hire a close friend that was, you know, uh, outside the box type of approach that didn't work. And kind of, you know, has put set the program back and, and Kenny's had to kind of dig out of that hole and, we don't know what the you know, ultimate NCAA sanctions are, but he staked a lot on this, this hire. And I think we're, this is a, a position where ASU is uh, made a good hire and checks a lot of the boxes and has positioned themselves well for the future. So I think that the, you know, the, the, the potential is there for things to, you know, to, for this spot you know, the last couple of year valleys for ASU to get out of that and thrive and start to climb up that mountain where, you know, where uh, these fans have long suffered and, you know, waited for decades to get back to that to that Rose Bowl type level. Uh, so I think that there's going to be a lot riding on, on this situation uh, of, you know, how well this Kenny Dillingham activate the Valley era ultimately goes over the next two years.
1: Brad, who starts game one at quarterback for Arizona State?
0: I think Trenton Bourget. He looked uh, the, the best in terms of the spring practice performance. Uh, he's a guy that, you know, while his, his tangibles, is, you know, he's not going to wow with the height, weight, or the arm strength, but his football IQ is really off the charts. You saw what he was able to do near the end of last year, and uh, I, his rapport with the, the weapons in spring. You know, Jalen Conyers should be one of the, the very best tight ends in the conference. Elijah Badger should be one of the very best wide receivers in the conference. The, they brought in a lot of very intriguing weapons uh, over the, in the transfer portal that looked really good in spring. Xavier Gilly is a name that I think a lot of folks are going to need to, to, to watch. Uh, I, and in this offense, um, there's obviously a lot of questions about the offensive line, but there's this offense is just the quarterback has to play point guard, has to make just be smart, make good decisions and get it out to your playmakers as fast as possible. Trent Bourget has done really well in that, that's a, that regard. It, it, it's a fascinating story. He came in here as a fifth string quarterback, just guy who wanted to you know, was prime for the scout team and just wanted to prep for his career as a, as a coach, but ultimately just continued to work, work and, uh, and really impress coaches and, Got his chance, and we were able to see a little bit of what he was able to do last year. So I think that, uh, you know, he's the front runner as of now. Jaden Rashad is obviously a name that a lot of folks nationally are going to uh, want to keep tabs on. This staff throughout spring was really kind of moving him and progressing him along slowly. I think they have a kind of confidence in what they have in Borgay. But, you know, Rashad is obviously the future. But I think, uh, you know, when they open up against Southern Utah, you'll see Borgay take that first snap.
1: All right, Brad Denny, uh you do you do a nice job with the podcast. I I encourage people to check it out if you are interested in Pac-12 sports or you need a primer on Arizona State. Uh the the Speak of the Devils podcast, Brad's on Twitter as well at @bdenny29. Brad, thank you for your time, man. Good stuff. Awesome, thank you. Appreciate it. All right, it. there there he is. Kenny Dillingham. Uh Stephen, we're going to talk about the Pac-12. Best football stadium in the Pac-12. Hold your answer. Hold your answer. Also, how successful can Arizona State be in year one? Can Washington State win 10, 11, or 12 games next season? What are the What are the expectations at Oregon and Oregon State? We'll kick it around next. you got the BFT statewide. Did I tell you, Stephen, this week I'm doing it all? Did I tell you that yet? I don't think I have.
4: Uh, I just assume you're doing it all. So that's, <laughs> all
1: right. You know. What do I mean by doing it all? Um, okay, so... Uh, Listers may have noted yesterday on the show that Anna did not do the 5 at 5. She was not available because she was out of the country yesterday, and she's out of the country almost on no notice. Um, For people who follow her on social media, you may have noted that about uh, 10 or 12 days ago, her stepmother, who lives in Taiwan with her father, passed away. And her dad's in his 70s, and... His head was spinning a little bit. I think that's the best way to put it, understandably so. Um, and so Anna was worried about him, and she, uh, on no notice, uh, had to fly to Seattle on Tuesday to uh, get a expedited passport at the passport office in Seattle. So... Talk about booking a flight on no notice! You know you're going to it's going to be a painful uh, flight. But she needed to go to Seattle on Tuesday morning, so she flew to Seattle. She uh, had an appointment at the passport office. She got her passport expedited, and then she stayed in Seattle uh, all day and caught a uh, essentially a red eye from Seattle to Taipei, Taiwan, that uh, took her. Um, essentially 12, 13-hour flight. And then she got on a bus, and then she got on a train, and she finally on, uh, say, what, today is uh, Thursday? So yesterday at about 5 o'clock, late in our show yesterday, I got a, a picture that she texted where she had finally reached her father, and so she was happy about that. She's spending some time with him uh, there. She's trying to convince him to... uh to come back to the state of Oregon and live here uh, because she's worried about him. And, but we all know you can't make your parents do what you want them to do uh, ultimately, so we'll see how that works out. But what I mean by I'm doing it all, um, you know, it starts for me at O-Dark oh 30. Uh, it's breakfast for the kids. It's lunches. It's out the door. It's to school. Do you have your backpack? Do you have your water bottle? Do you have your homework? Do you, Are you wearing your glasses uh, are you wearing uh, clothes that are too warm for an 89 degree day? Or you know, then it's column radio show. Um, and you know what? The you know who's really suffering is the dog that Anna takes to the dog park. I I got no time for the dog right now. And so uh, uh, shout out to all the moms and dads who are getting their kids up and are getting them out the door and are making sure they're brushing their teeth. And I'm checking the toothbrushes, make sure they're wet. You know, did you brush your teeth? I, you know let me let me check the toothbrush uh doing all that stuff that Anna's normally doing in the background, so I'm doing it all, and uh Anna's having me book a flight for her dad to come back, but um she says I may have you cancel it in the next five or six hours, depending on what he says, so we'll see how that goes but man, I don't know what your mornings are like in your household. It's a bit of a scramble over here right now.
4: Yeah, uh, I know what you mean. I uh, My wife, you know, teacher, coach, she's yeah. at the door by 7 a.m. So, you know, that's about the time I got to get up and I got to make sure uh, the boys get to eat. Because my son, eight years old, second grade, he he has to be at school by 745. So, uh, you know, between 730, Woo. 745, they open the doors and get in there. So got to get them ready. Then you got the youngest one. He's in preschool for a couple days a week. Got to get him going. Uh, you know, nine o'clock ish. So you're doing this. Yeah, I'm doing this every day. So I I I feel your pain. Ooh. It's a, it's a scramble every day, and sometimes, you know, the kids just don't want to get ready and you guys say, you know what, let's get dressed, let's get ready, we step what into is high the gear. Biggest,
1: what's the biggest hassle in the
4: process for you? Uh, for me, the youngest one, he likes to just sleep in his underwear a lot, and then it's hard to put clothes on him. Like I feel like <laughs> <laughs> like I mean, I I guess I could just put him in the car when I drop the oldest one off at yeah. school, but I just I don't know. I feel like that's a little weird. So I gotta get clothes on him, and he's just like, oh, I'm so comfortable. That yeah. that's the hardest part for sure. Is the youngest one not even going to school? It's like just getting him in the car and put clothes on. That's that's tough.
1: Uh, that's fascinating because the I think the young ones, uh, you know, I can vouch for that. The youngest one is a little feistier. Uh, they're they're scrappers, the youngest in their family. Yeah, and so, th- they'll fight yeah. for it.
4: That's the thing. If they're strong enough, th- their will, they will not give in. So it, you really got to convince them or just force them to do it.
1: I felt bad for Anna because she arrives. She, okay, so she, she leaves Seattle on a flight that left at one fifty in the morning on Wednesday morning, okay? So basically late Tuesday night, early Wednesday morning, she she leaves Seattle, one fifty in the morning. She arrives in Taiwan at 5 a.m., Local time in Taiwan. So she slept on the plane, but you know how sleeping on a plane is. You're not really sleeping. And now, she, then she's facing, you know, her day in Taiwan. And so last night, she messaged, like, you know, I don't really know what, my body doesn't know what time it is. Uh, and then I just spoke with her right before the show. She called me and I said, What time is it there? She says, Five o'clock in the morning. I said, Okay, way to go. You made it 24 hours uh, in Taiwan. I'd love to go to Taiwan, I'd love to check it out but somebody's got to run the ship over here. These kids are not going to dress themselves and get ready. And and the refrain I keep going to, I don't know if you do this. I keep saying cuz Anna before she left, she had a huddle with the girls and she told them, "Hey, um, I really need you to help dad. He's going to need your help." And so uh anytime they're difficult, I go, "Hey man, what did your mom say right before you left?"
4: You, you know, you, you always got to put the blame on mom. Not that it is the <laughs> blame, but you know, you got to make them think, "Hey, mom's still watching you," you know.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. My mom's watching you. But, the, you know, given the technology, it's not like mom doesn't have communication. Like, you know, she emailed me, she texted me, she sent me a bunch of photos and stuff, but I'm like, hey, man, we're doing bath time. We're doing bath time over here. <laughs> I don't know if I had time for that. Um, all right, big splash. Let's, let's, cha- let's jam it in. We got one for you today.
3: This is
2: the one thing you absolutely need to know today.
0: Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there.
1: You may remember a cyber attack that related to fantasy sports and betting that happened this past fall that it impacted about 60,000 people. Well, there was an indictment today unsealed in the Southern District of New York. An 18-year-old Wisconsin man has been charged with cyber crimes and for perpetuating a cyber attack on fantasy sports. He's charged in this. The sentence carries... A maximum of twenty years in prison if he's convicted. Uh, be careful out there. That's the uh, the ultimate thing: cyber attack on fantasy sports. How about them apples? Well, now I feel bad for saying I'm doing it all because Stephen does it does it all every day. You're over there uh, getting the kids to school, being a dad, be on the show, tap dancing, entertaining. Doing it all.
4: I'm a real pro. That's what it is. You
1: are a real pro. Uh, hey, I, I tweeted out, best stadium in the Pac-12. Best stadium in the Pac-12. Getting a lot of people with different answers, sending pictures of their stadiums, whatnot. Um, you know, USC fans, Arizona State fans, um, Husky Stadium on, you know, on the lake. How about Tucson? Or how about Colorado? Colorado's got a beautiful stadium. The Rose Bowl. Oregon State's newly finished stadium. How about underrated? Washington State's underrated. Um, Everybody listing their stadium. But what if I said you can't vote for your own stadium? Do you have a favorite Pac-12 stadium or stadium you just love to go to that you haven't been to yet?
4: You talking to me? Yeah, I'm talking to you. I've, I, 12 state? I've only been to two, so okay. I've only been to the Oregon ones.
1: All right, so outside of the Oregon ones, which one would you want to go to?
4: Um, I think I've seen I've seen Arizona State in person. I've seen I think Washington. I think I want a big game in Seattle. Yeah. I think that would be awesome, just on you know right next to Lake Washington. I think that's just a great environment, yes. and it can it's get pretty. very yeah very pretty, very loud there. I think that would be number one for me. I think it's pretty
1: I think the Washington fans all think it's the greatest stadium. I I I'm not sitting in the stands for most games, so I I probably don't have the greatest um vantage point for that because I more I judge the stadiums more on kind of the aesthetic of the stadium and how the backdrop and the scenery looks beyond the stadium when you're in the stadium because from the press box I can see like when you're in Tucson uh, at Arizona Stadium, you can see beyond the stadium. You can watch the sunset in the desert. It's it's fantastic. It, but nobody tells me, nobody's been in that stadium, tells me, oh, it's the greatest stadium in the Pac-12. But, the, but it is a stunning portrait. Same goes for Folsom Field in Colorado. When you walk up to Folsom Field in Colorado, you see the mountains, and the stadium is almost, it, it feels a little old school because it has kind of the field house that's attached to it. And as you walk up into it, then you know it's it's just, just this great, very symmetrical stadium. And when the lights are on for a night game as the sun is setting there, it is again stunning. With the sky the sky can be red. And it's it's just amazing. Like you look at it and you're like, Wow, that's like a that's a portrait that you'd like to hang over your fireplace. Um, I, I think Audsen Stadium has that feel. I haven't liked Research Stadium maybe until this year because it it always just felt like it was one of those before and after pictures, you know? Like, you know, fat guy who lost weight, and so on, on one
4: side, are, you're
1: looking, at are,
4: you're we looking ta- at... are we taking the Rose Bowl for granted a little bit here?
1: Yes. Yes. Because that could be the answer every time. Like, you could go, hey, what matches the Rose Bowl? And, and frankly, the, the Los Angeles Coliseum. It, You know, I've Daniel VanderWright, DVD, who is... The director of football operations for Oregon State, he played. He played on. Uh, he grew up in the same small town I grew up in, and he was my brother's grade. So he's about five years younger than me, and and he played on my dad's little league teams. Well, my dad coached DVD, who's now the director of football operations, and and I will always see DVD Daniel Vanderwijk as Danny Vanderwijk. Who, by the way, I was umpiring those little league games that he played in. So I was like fifteen. 16, 17, and those guys were 10, 11, 12-year-olds playing Major League Baseball, and I'm behind the plate. And uh, I'll always see them at that age. And DVD told me when they were on the field at the Los Angeles Coliseum, he walked over to me, I was on the sideline, and he was like, there's something about this stadium. And and he's right. And I don't think he's alone in saying that. There is something about just sort of the striking Feel of being in this that stadium of those sizes, like the Rose Bowl or the l a coliseum and um you know Cal gets a bad rap, but I think Cal's kind of cool in that you're literally in a neighborhood in Berkeley, and you could be down on you know Telegraph Avenue and you walk up like five minutes and now you're in a football stadium like it's just like this groovy little let's just put a stadium in a neighborhood thing, and there's you know all the housing and student housing and fraternities all sororities all around it. That's kind of interesting. And then and I think Stanford's got its own you know, can make a case too, because the eucalyptus grove that is the parking lot. You're literally parking like in a in a park. And you look around and you're like, This isn't different. This is not a paved, you know, gravel parking lot. You're like amid the eucalyptus trees and oh, by the way, there's a football stadium right here. So I think the the Pac twelve has got like a good question. Um uh, you know a good question for uh for people who are looking at you know the um the the stadium you know if you're asking a question on social media, I should just say this if you're asking any question on social media or you're in a you're in a cocktail party or you're having a dinner party and you're trying to stimulate conversation the best way to stimulate conversation is to ask a question that has no singular answer okay it, it there's no there's no right or wrong answer, of course, to what's the best stadium, and you know and by your it's everybody's got their own opinion on what is the best stadium, but the the thing about the Pac-12 is it's not just that every fan might vote for their own stadium. Like even if I eliminate your home stadium, there's no obvious answer to this question, and and so for you, Steven, I would say this. All right, give me the ones you w- you really want to see. You want to go to see Husky Stadium. Mm-hmm. I would send you to Folsom Field in Colorado.
4: That might be my number e- 2, yeah.
1: Yeah, for that experience. You've been to the Rose Bowl? No. You need to go to the Rose Bowl. Okay. There's your there's your top 3.
4: Yeah, okay? I, I think Colorado would be awesome because I, I do love the backdrop with the mountains and everything like that. What different conversation also is what would you say is the best home field advantage? Cuz what you know, you said what's the best stadium? That was my original thought was, oh, I'll rank them by what's the toughest home field advantage. Because that's a different question than what the most beautiful is. Home field advantage. Autzen's, Autzen's got to be up there. <sighs> I had Utah at one. Ooh, Utah.
1: Yeah, Utah's one. That's right. And you know what? Utah's – I didn't mention Utah. The view out of the back of the press box in Utah, you, I don't care if it's early in the college football season, late in the college football season, there's snow in the mountains. And it's it's gorgeous. And the fans at Utah, again, they have they are sold out with season tickets. And there's a wait list of two thousand people on their wait list, so you're you're not wrong there. those Utah fans are locked in, and um frankly I think uh if you're if you're voting for Utah, you're not wrong um really good stuff, good conversation uh good debate nevertheless uh let's play some punch at audio. We have great sound today if uh you want to weigh in on the stadium you'd really like to see or tell me what you think the best stadium is in the Pac-12 or the biggest home-field advantage, I'll take your phone calls. You can hang on while we do Punch in Audio, but line up now at
4: 503-417-7575. Let's do it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters.
1: Hey, we're all about truth, justice,
2: and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day.
5: You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey,
2: it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling.
5: Well, let's do it,
1: giddy up. Uh, look, we've been talking a lot about basketball, in particular, Damian Lillard up in the air. He... Uh, Came out today and he's talking about, you know, hey, if uh, if you want to trade me, start a petition. Uh, Damian Lillard, this is uh, an interview he did in April with Stephen A. Smith. How much longer? How much gas left in the tank for Lillard? Punch it.
3: I think I can. I think I can be on the level that I'm on now for another three or four years. Nothing's My game isn't based off of athleticism. I think I'll. I think because of how I live my life and how I train, I'll always be quick, I'll always be a a high level shooter, I'll always be a high level thinker, Um, and I know how to play the game. Like I know how to be this version of myself, it's got to be healthy, Um, you know, it's not based on being above the rim, it's not based on being faster than people. I play quick, I change pace, I can shoot, I know how to manipulate the game, I watch film, you know, I'm a student of it. I know what it would take for me to be able to sustain this level, and I know that I can do it.
1: Look, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with Lillard that he thinks he can play three to four more years at that level. But he, you know, buried in that is he's got to stay healthy. I think that is the biggest problem you have when you have players that are pushing towards 33, 34, 35, 36 years old. And, and certainly in three years from now, Uh, three seasons from now, Lillard will be making $58 million a season. So I watched Chris Paul, as did you, Stephen, in these playoffs, not effective in a full-court game. Is Lillard being really honest with himself? Because I think sometimes the hardest thing is to to see your own abilities and your own limitations, especially for a player who hasn't had them before.
4: I think he is. I don't necessarily agree that he's going to be the same level Uh, that he is this year. I think this is the best he's ever been. I don't know if he'll be at the top of this game. I mean, if he played the the most of the games and the Blazers were in the playoff race, I think he probably could have been first team all NBA. Like, that's how good he played this season. I don't know if he'll be that good, but I will say, John, you talk about the health and that's the biggest question with Dane. I know he's healthier now. He's healthy-ish, but he has shown more of a willing to sit out games and load manage during the regular season. I think that's going to be big for him going down the stretch of this career like He has to sit out games. He can't play 80, you know, 75, 80 games. He's got to be down 65, 70 because that's just going to help his body so much as the season progresses. And that's where I think the Blazers run into a problem is that throughout his career, when he misses games, the Blazers aren't very good. And so I think it's kind of a, you know, it's a catch-22 right there. Like, he has to miss some games to stay healthy, but the Blazers need him to play every game to be good. So I, I, I believe him when he says he thinks he can do it. I don't know if he can do it because he, he may not stay healthy if he wants to play all these games.
1: Yeah, and, and that's the thing when I look at him is, you know, you look at I need a bigger sample size than just this last season because if you think about just this last season, he's coming off a year in which he had a season-ending, you know, surgery, an abdominal surgery. He took his time. They were very careful with him. I think he entered this year with the best opportunity to come back and be at his best. He's not going to get that every season. And I do think players who played in the bubble during the pandemic and played, uh, you know, especially deep in those playoffs, I think they looked, you know, they were tired coming into this. This, the, You know, it, it happened fast. The pace, the calendar of the season was off because of the pandemic. They're back on calendar now. In a weird way, does it help him that the Blazers on a playoff team, Stephen? I mean, he, he's, getting, he's getting rest now. It's load management time for months.
4: Yeah, I think it was big last season. Uh, You remember he missed a lot of last year. He probably could have came back at some point, but they were so bad. They sat him out. I think it helped him for the start of this year. And he played that well, really well. And I think it will help him go into the next season. So in a weird way. Yeah, I think them tanking them being so bad has maybe prolonged Dame's peak career for maybe another half year full year. Jimmy Butler, Miami Heat. He's
1: talking and he's saying, yeah, we believed we could do this. Heat beat the Celtics 123-116 yesterday in game one of the Eastern Conference Finals. Here's Butler.
4: How does this feel to you guys, what you have done so far? And if you go back all the way to that night against Chicago in the play-in, did you think then that something like this would be possible?
6: Damn right. I did. Damn right. We did. Um, And the best part about it is we still don't care what none of y'all think, honestly speaking. um, We don't care if you pick us to win. We never have. We never will. We know the group of guys we have in his locker room. Um, we know that Coach Bo um, puts so much confidence and belief in each and every one of us. Coach Pat as well. And so our circle's small, but this circle got so much love for one another. Um, we pump constant confidence into everybody. In regard then, we hoop. We play basketball the right way, knowing that we always got a chance.
1: Knowing that you always have a chance. I like the chip on the shoulder. Miami's a good story. You talk about play-in games. You talk about lower-seeded teams. We're watching the Lakers. We're watching the Heat. Um, You know, it's possible that these two teams could end up playing each other. Does it give give hope? I mean, certainly we don't have David Stern's NBA here, Stephen. We've got Adam Silver's NBA where, you know, the essential wildcard teams are playing deep into the playoffs.
4: I think it gives a little bit of hope, right? I mean, you look at these teams – the Lakers at the seventh seed play in the play-in, but they got LeBron James, Anthony Davis, two of the top ten players in the NBA, probably. Jimmy Butler on the heat, he's a top ten player in my mind. He always has been. He is that good. I know regular season Jimmy is different playoff from playoff Jimmy, but playoff Jimmy Butler, man, he is awesome. So I think if you got that star player, like, yeah, you can make a run because they're so talented. And like I said, you know, before Dame, like, guys are sitting out in the regular season. They're they're you know, they're they're tuning up for the playoffs. Flip that switch, and I think it is showing like you know what? As long as we get in the play-in, we got a shot if we have a, if we have that guy that can really carry a team. And Jimmy Butler, man, he he's that guy. He's that dude. It doesn't hurt that Eric Spoelstra, best coach in the NBA as well, but Jimmy Butler, Eric Spoelstra, great one-two combo right there.
1: Kevin Harlan on the call. Jimmy freaking Butler. Harlan's good. Listen to this. Punch it.
5: Out matching his way into Horford. Shot clock at three. Butler with Brogdon on Puts it in! <laughs> Clock running down.
1: And it's the butler who did it. Jimmy all day. NBA Twitter. Uh
4: Jimmy really. freaking butler. <laughs> That's so good. That's such a good call, John. Yeah. <laughs> Where do you rank do you rank Harlan as the you know the best uh, NBA guy right now? What you got him at?
1: I would listen to Carlin, or Harlan, Carlin. R- remember when Harlan did the black cat on the field on Monday Night Football? Oh, yeah. Remember when the cat got loose? So good. I mean, I just think a great broadcaster can call,
5: you know, bowling. A great broadcaster can call your kids Little League. Going down to the turf. Oh, there's a cat. on A black cat has taken the field. A black cat is running from the 20 to the near side, the 10, and he got in the end zone at the other end of the field. A shotgun snap from the 39 in Dallas. Here's a short throw down the middle, caught by Ingram. Caught at the 35, went to the 30. Now the cat running the other way. And so is Ingram at the 30 to the 25 to the 24-yard line of the Dallas Cowboys. It's a catch-run of 15. Now the cat is stopped at the 50. The cat, the black cat is at the other end of the field.
7: He's Black at the Black Cat eight. doesn't
5: know that it was last Thursday that was Halloween. Thursday oh, night right, football, yeah, not He's Monday night football. He's a little bit late. Now he's at the 5. He's who brought the walking, cat? He's walking to the 3. He's at the 2. And the cat is in the CDW red zone. CDW, people who get it now, a policeman. a State trooper has come on the field. And the cat runs into the end zone. That is a touchdown. And the cat is elusive. Kind of like Barkley and Elliott but he didn't know where to go look at they're trying to corner him and they got him in the end zone there are state troopers all around this cat which now climbs up into the stands and the fans are running for their line now it goes back on the field again and it's running in the back of the end zone and it runs up the tunnel
1: (laughs) there it is Kevin Kevin Harlan and the cat on Monday Night Football in 2019 uh, moving on to Lincoln Riley, USC coach. Uh, year one went pretty well. Got a Heisman Trophy win with Caleb Williams. Made the Pac-12 title game and, and lost it. And then uh, ran into Tulane in the in the bowl season. What about year two for Lincoln Riley? Here he is, punching. Yeah, up. man.
2: We definitely want to build. You know, we were we were we were pretty close to getting in the playoff last year. Um, obviously, uh, did some, did some really good things, didn't play the way we wanted to at the end. Um, you know, so it was kind of that, kind of that bittersweet, right. You, you know, you've come a long way, but, um, you're, you're that close to even taking it further. And I think my goal would be is that we take that experience and and we grow from it and we make the improvements that I, I really feel like we could make. And, um, you know, you can only do so much in year one, and I think I think we did a lot. Uh, but there's still, like, I, I keep telling people, like, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Like, this is we're we're not even good yet. You know, we, I, I think we're gonna have a chance to get good here pretty quick, which which you know, obviously is going to be a lot of fun. So.
1: Yeah, look, uh, you know, I think I think look, it was a great year one, and and he exceeded my expectations for year one. I thought USC would have a bigger problem with physicality in year one. But their offensive scheme was good. Uh, they had a couple of dicey games that I think they got away with. The Oregon State game early in the year, they should have lost that game. If Oregon State doesn't just, uh, you know, pee down its leg, there's no other way to say it. If Oregon State doesn't doesn't blow that game and throw five interceptions, uh, Oregon State wins that game at Reser Stadium. And we're not talking about, hey, you know, they were so close. Uh, They got exposed in the title game because Caleb Williams got hurt. But Utah was a better team there. So I still think there's a step forward for Lincoln Riley. And he really has done it, especially in recruiting and especially with recruiting in the transfer portal. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what they can be. Will they be more physical? They got Bear Alexander, the defensive tackle from Georgia, in the portal. That's the kind of player that's going to take USC from, hey, can they get to the Pac-12 title game again, to... Uh, you know can they win the national championship and that's kind of where they are i know a lot i
4: know most coaches are going to sound confident but john he sounded really confident in his team that he thinks they're going to be the college football playoff team this year that's the way i took that that comment right he had yeah i i would just caution him you know yeah i mean he said we weren't even good last year and they were one game away from the college football playoff like where else can you go but up from there i don't know man
1: i think they're pretty good they're pretty good um I just don't know. Like, you know, we looked back at their schedule last year. I think you and I both thought they would have trouble with Stanford in the opening Pac-12 game. <laughs> did, yeah. Stanford ended up not being very good. And, you know, here's what it will be, though. They're going to start 5-0 and at least. They play Notre Dame in Week 6. That's their first test, you know. And I think they will be highly ranked and sailing along. But the last month of the season, here comes Utah. Here comes Oregon. Here comes Washington. Uh, you know, it's those matchups late in the year where you know we're going to find out, you know, who the Pac-12's contender is, if there is one. ACC Commissioner Jim Phillips, there is a problem in the ACC footprint right now. A lot of unrest, a lot of speculation. Here's Jim Phillips. He's the commissioner.
7: Punching. These are schools that are under a lot of stress and a lot of pressures, and um, and I understand that I really do. The reality is, our conference is third in the country in distribution third and um, as we look at the projections at least in this decade we're going to continue to be there now we want to close the gap we need to close the gap between the top two uh, conferences that have started to to run away from from us Um, but you see that we've been proactive whether it's we be with Fishbait, whether it be with ESPN we've had some tremendous meetings with them and they understand being a 50-50 partner Uh, that they're incentivized as as well. We have multiple ways where we're trying to tack this, and again, I don't think there's one silver bullet or one move that you make that you close that financial gap. All that being said, you know, the league is strong.
1: Yeah, look, um, I think Jim Phillips is trying to empathize with his members, and he's speaking on behalf of his members, but what I really hear him saying is, hey, ESPN, can we redo this deal? And I just don't believe ESPN is going to want to redo a deal that's very favorable to the, to the worldwide leader. Like, they made a long-term deal with the ACC because they were betting on the idea that in the end it was going to be a, you know, they were looking at the market and forecasting, you know, sort of how it was going to end up, and, and, and ESPN looks really smart right now. I also have a problem with him as he says, you know, as you look at it, we're the, we're going to be in third place when it comes to revenue. The ACC is not better than the SEC. It shouldn't be in front of the SEC. It's not better than the big 10. I, I think you could argue that they should be happy to be in third place. They are Clemson. They are Florida state. They are Miami. And, you know, I think I'd put them in third place based on that. Like, I don't, I don't see the bellyaching and the beefing, but what they're going to try to do here is I think they're going to try to bring ESPN to the table and try to renegotiate part of the deal, try to sprinkle some additional revenue on top. I I don't think the grant of rights could be successfully challenged. I don't think they're going to get a renegotiation with the media rights deal. Leave it here. you got the BFT. I reframed the question on Twitter because everybody was picking their own home Pac-12 stadium. Everybody's going, our stadium, my stadium. You can't vote for yourself. It's like elementary school. You, know, you can vote for someone in your class. You can't vote for yourself. Um, uh, all, right. When you go, all right. When you're talking about stadiums or arenas, and I want to hear from you at 503-417-7575, when you're talking about stadiums or arenas, what criteria goes into telling me whether or not a stadium is a good stadium or not? The game day experience in a sports stadium. What is it about for you? If you're an Oregon fan, is it about ease of getting in and out of the parking lot at Onsen Stadium? It's not easy. The traffic around Onsen Stadium on a game day is cumbersome. It it is. Everybody's got their tricks. Everybody has their parking lot they like. But, you know, even myself, I've got a media parking pass. It's not the easiest place to get in and out of. Much easier to get into uh, Utah in Salt Lake City. The stadium around there has a lot of... uh, Streets and a lot of side streets and ample parking and parking garages. And so it is easy to get in and out of there. Research Stadium, I don't know with the new footprint of the stadium how the parking lot is going to work, but I can tell you from the spring game it was a little bit of a nightmare. And I think Oregon State is bracing because they have less parking lot space now because the footprint of the west side of the stadium is eating up some parking spaces. So I'm curious to see how that's going to work out for Oregon State this year, um, you know, what goes into that game day experience for you? Whether it's, uh, you know, is it just, hey, I can get in and out of the arena? Um, you know, I don't feel like I'm sitting on an airplane in a middle seat when I'm, at, <laughs> when I'm in my seat. Um, you know, some people will t- say concessions are important. I'm not as big as the, on the concession experience, although when I am at a stadium, I like to get out and walk around it and, you know, kind of see what fans are feeling, you know, and, and experiencing. But you tell me. The stadium experience, what is it about for you as a sports fan? 503 What things are important? Because I have a feeling that I'm a little bit disconnected from the experience you're having. Um, you know, and, and I think people people can uh, say all they want that it's about the football or whatnot, but it is. Like, if the football's great, the stadium, you don't mind so much that there were some lines at the restrooms of the concession stands. But... Um, Really, I think uh, part of that experience is unique to you. And, uh, and I think that's, that's everything, that, you know, everything that we're all about. Does it concern you, Stephen? I want to pivot a little bit here. The story I mentioned as the big splash today involved an 18-year-old who is being charged in a cyber attack on a sports book. This is in the news today. 18-year-old Wisconsin man charged with crimes related to a cyber attack on fantasy sports this last fall. It impacted 60,000 accounts. Uh, The United States Attorney General's office in the Southern District of New York is prosecuting Joseph Garrison of Madison, Wisconsin. They're charging him with six counts of conspiracy and fraud and identity theft. Um, And they're saying it started in mid-November, and basically he stole usernames and passwords, and uh, he, he uh, I don't know what he was trying to do, uh, but you know, maybe he was just trying to jam up DraftKings or FanDuel or whatever he was going after. But uh, FanDuel was affected by it, so was DraftKings. And, you know, it, it was a breach, and $300,000 worth of funds were withdrawn in the attack. Does it rattle you or your confidence in FanDuel, DraftKings, and these sites, or does it reinforce with you that, Hey, this happened. They're on it. They're prosecuting. And everybody who lost money got their account restored.
4: Yeah. I mean, as long as they get their accounts restored, because I do know a guy, um, his, his draft King, draft King's account was actually affected by this. Um, he had funds removed from, uh, from his account and he got it back. And so, you know, for me, like it's, I, it's, it's nice that they caught him, but Like, it doesn't affect my thinking of, am I going to use FanDuel or DraftKings? Because, you know what? Before, John, like, allegedly, maybe I was using offshore stuff. That's even more sketchy. Allegedly Allegedly you were. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. I I can't prove me. Can't prove it. But, you know, offshore stuff, which is even more dangerous. So, like, it's not going to bother me. Like, if you want to gamble, I'm going to find a way to gamble. So, I'm glad that DraftKings at least is going about it where they're making sure they found this, and then they're going to restore all these accounts that lost money. So, it gives me a little more confidence, I guess in DraftKings that this happened but um I'm just happy for the people that got their money back cuz that I mean that's a bad way to go like that would lose that would lose a lot of customers if they decided not to do that.
1: Yeah, I, I obviously yeah that they that that consumer confidence is a huge par- piece of that. And I think it's really important that you know DraftKings FanDuel, you know, obviously the revenue that they're generating for their various states including the state of Oregon, it's massive revenue. I'll get some updates on the handle that the state of Oregon is taking in, but I'm willing to bet that last year has been a record-breaking year. And so uh, I do think that the states uh, like New York are going to be motivated to uh, enforce that and, and prosecute that. All right, let's go to the phone lines. We're talking about your stadium experience. What matters to you inside the stadium? Is it parking? Is it concessions? Is it just that the product's good on the field? Is it sight lines? Is it, you know ease of getting in and out of the stadium, you tell me at five oh three four one seven seventy five seventy five mark is in Portland mark what's going on, man?
2: hey, how you doing Good. um first of all, none of the golfers I bet on are on the leaders board, so man. <laughs> another day. um
1: Pass the beer I, nuts. I think it has
2: a lot to do with the the magnitude of the game, like I'm always gonna remember yeah. Glendale, Arizona, because of Oregon being tied with Auburn with you know a couple of minutes to go and that close to a national championship. I also remember when we played Colorado in the Fiesta Bowl at Arizona State, uh, it was a great venue because we destroyed them and proved em- emphatically we should have been in the Rose Bowl. It's ironic for me, as many games as I've seen I've never been to the Rose Bowl and I, I think that that would be something that would be kind of a bucket list thing for me on, you know, the sun going down, but the game doesn't mean anything anymore because of the BCS garbage. So, I mean, the Rose bowl isn't, isn't like a playoff game. It used to be two conference champions automatic meeting each other. And it's not that way anymore, but anyway, that the, I think it the bigger the game, the the better the venue gets. And I think as far as home field advantage, I mean, you could say a lot of things, uh, Oregon certainly has an advantage with the bowl being right down. Uh, no separation between the fans. It's very loud in there. And then I've been up in – you know, when Washington has had good teams, it's it, that's an extremely difficult place to play. So I think there's a lot of home-field advantage teams in the Pac-12.
4: Yeah.
1: It, it, you know, Autzen Stadium, I think, from a, from a sound standpoint – thanks, Mark, for the call. From a sound standpoint, Autzen Stadium's loud. But, Stephen, you hit it. Rice Eccles Stadium in Utah. The fans there, um, you know, and I, I'll go back to the two seasons ago November. Oregon walked in there and got ambushed, and the fans in there were screaming for the spleens. You know, like they they didn't want to just win. They want it was uh, it was the Roman Coliseum, man, and everybody. You know, it was it was an ambush.
4: I mean, think of the teams that've lost there. I mean, yeah. you know, years ago, Michigan went in there with Harbaugh. They lost. USC lost last season. You talk about Oregon losing there. Like, all these teams go in there and lose. Like, I, I look at the Pac-12, and I'm, I'm looking at schedules. I see at Utah, I, I count that out as an L basically every single time. So I, I think Utah is number one in my book for the Pac-12 uh, most difficult stadium.
1: Yeah, I think Utah, you have to say Utah's in there. It, and it helps that the football team's good. Yes. And they're, and they're different there. Like, I think if they they beat USC there. I went to the game last year where they played USC. They win that game, I think it was thirty five thirty-four. They, you know, they were they looked like they were goners at halftime. It was kinda like watching one of those Rocky movies where Rocky gets beat up for about six, seven rounds and then he comes roaring back late. It was that's kind of the uh, you know, at halftime USC was in control of that game. And I give Andy Ludwig, the offensive coordinator of Utah a lot of credit because I think they had seven drives in the second half. And I think they scored touchdowns on six of them or it was something like six of their last seven drives of the game, maybe that they scored touchdowns on. And the only drive they didn't get a TD on, they fumbled on the two yard line going in. And it was like their last seven drives, they were just they were almost perfect. And then Cam Rising gets the two point conversion and Utah wins and then fans storm the field. They went over the rails and stormed the field. And I thought that night I'm in, you know, I'm in the press box watching this and I'm The column I wrote was largely about the rest of the Pac-12, and there were still some bad feelings, probably still are, about USC leaving for the Big Ten. And it was that win that, like, I think was celebrated by everybody else in the Pac-12. But I left the stadium that night, and I thought to myself, if this game was at the Coliseum in L.A., USC wins it. Like, you know, USC was a better team, I thought, at that point of the season. And but Utah had that stadium on its side, which is really really interesting. All right, Damian Lillard says fans, Blazer fans, if they want him traded, should start a petition. I want to dive into that in the next segment. I hope you're here for it. I appreciate everybody who listens to the show. I really do. I like meeting you. We were out at uh, Mother's Day brunch at uh, Bricks and Uh Shout out to Mark and the staff there. Uh, and uh, we were standing at the buffet. I mentioned the buffet on Monday's show, and my dad was just raving about it. And and uh, I had uh, one guy who walked by me, and he said, Hey, BFT, fist bumped me on his way out. And then Anna mentioned the lady who was uh, the woman who was in the restaurant who said she listens to the show every day. She's a huge Boston fan, probably not doing so great today after the Game 1 loss. Uh, the Celtics uh, losing to the Miami Heat in Game 1 of the Eastern Conference Finals. But uh, nice to see listeners. I appreciate that you're out there. Uh, the show would not be the same without you. um This isn't like the rock band that goes into every town and goes, "Hey, what's up Portland?" and then they realize they're in San Diego. It's not how it is um i just I really enjoy the listeners who have been with us for years and years and years and and if you're a new listener- li- listening today for the very first time, I appreciate that you're along for the ride and you're here um It's always fun to uh to see new people and to hear from new people as well. If you want to read me, you can read me at johnkanzano.com. I wrote about Kalen DeBoer, Mario Cristobal, Mike Riley, Jonathan Smith, Dan Lanning. I wrote about coaches and uh, and how maniacal they get, how crazy that work-life balance is. Talked about it off the top of the show. I won't go uh, back through that rant, but uh, it was. Uh, it's on my mind. It's on my mind a lot. Uh, Damian Lillard on my mind as well. Lillard... Uh, On social media today and doing interviews, um, you know, the Blazers, obviously, with the number three pick. Um, I want to go back and talk about Lillard and kind of the mindset and the framing of things. Um, He's at least posturing on social media like he wants to be in Portland and remain in Portland, and the mission is to win here. And, you know, I don't live far from where his house is. It's probably five miles away, maybe. Less than five miles, a few miles away. And I happen to know one of his neighbors really well. And I, I spend time there. And my kids know their kids, and we're over there. And so I have seen up close the compound that Lillard has built. And he bought a five-acre a home that is on five acres in West Lynn. And he has built a, uh, a big basketball facility on it. And, and it looks like the Blazers practice facility. And it's, I mean, it's just, it's striking. It looks amazing. I'm sure that, you know, he's going to have a recording studio in there as well. It looks like it's a full gym and a fitness center and everything. I mean, it it looks like a 24-hour fitness. And so I think he's here, right? I I don't think he's going anywhere. I think he wants to be here and he's here. But what he wants and what's right for the franchise may not be one and the same. And they may only be, you know, they may have a congruency of objective for a year or two more, a year more, a month more, a week more. I don't know what that's going to be. But at some point, he's going to want to continue to be paid $54, 58000000 million a year. And he's not going to be worth that. And so that is where my concern for the Blazers organization and the fan base is. Now, I want to go back to just a month ago. April he talked with Stephen A. Smith in an interview Um, and let's just set the tone on where Lillard's head was
2: is that your way of saying the Portland Trailblazers on the clock they got to show a level of urgency or else
3: I mean I ain't go I'm not even going it ain't a threat I'm not you know I ain't gonna say I'm putting them on the clock I'm just saying you know if those things can't be done you know we can't do something significant like that then you know we won't we won't have a chance to right to, you know compete on that level and then not only will I have a decision to make but I think the organization will too because at that point it's like right. you know are you going to go young or are we going to get something done i think we just mm-hmm. kind of been on the with you know fully committing to, right. to either one and i just think you know we at that point down where everybody everybody wants to win you know they they believe that I deserve that opportunity and I'm trusting that we're gonna you know be committed and you know uh diligent about doing all of those things this off season
1: there's lillard in April he also went on to say that urgency is at an all-time high this off season
3: I just feel like you know at this point in my career it's uh and I've told them this, I'm like, man, it's, it's time to stop. You know, we tried and all of that, you know. I think our our urgency has to go to we have to get things done. Like, this time around, we have to be done. It's been back-to-back years, missing the playoffs. Um, I feel like I had the best season of my career this season. I felt the best that I felt in a long time. I felt more in control of games than I ever have. Just from being able to dominate the games, right. you know, it was... It was much more easy and simple for me this season. Um, so I just, you know, they know how important it is to no. just, you know, be on a competitive team on a, on a level where we can, you know, make a run in the playoffs. And, uh, you know, that just, that just has to happen.
1: There it is. He's talking about, he's talking like a lot of Blazer fans, is he not? Like, I kind of think that. Damian Lillard, to me right now, feels like he's at odds with the people, myself included, who are saying it's time to trade him. But when I hear him talking, the reason why I am at the it's time to trade him is because I don't believe this franchise is close, and I don't believe it is capable of doing what is necessary to get him in position. Um, He has tweeted out, you know, hey, if you want me out of town, sign a petition, which I think is kind of silly it doesn't need to be a petition it, it in fact it this isn't a vote this is not a democracy if the blazers organization feels like the best thing for them is to try to build around lillard knowing that they can sell a few more season tickets and then the message that they're planting with media members who cover the team is that hey you know you know if we if we if we trade the if we trade lillard we're going to end up like all these teams that are sitting on 20 wins this season Guess what? You weren't that far away with Lillard this last season. So, Stephen, help me out here. If is there is there common ground between the crowd that says Lillard needs to go, it's time to pivot, and the crowd that says no, he doesn't, he needs to stay? Is there common ground, or is it an either or? Yeah,
4: I think there is common ground because I both both camps think that they're doing what's best for the organization. But my pushback on the fans that say, let's keep Dame here. He deserves to be built around. He's earned that response or he's earned that uh, respect. Have the Blazers not been trying to build around him? Like they've tried this past season and they were bad. So what makes you think that this season is going to be different? Joe Cronin didn't put a team around him last year. I know everyone goes back to what he said in the off season where he kind of hinted it was going to be a transition season, but it didn't happen. And they tried to win with Dame last year. He had the best year of his career and they had the fifth worst record in the NBA, so I just don't know what the difference is going to be this year if they really try to go for it. Are, are they going to do it and be the eighth seed, the seventh seed? Like, is that good enough? I don't know. I I think both both camps think they're right, but there's no right there's no right answer, and that's the problem. You know, John, as as a gambler that I am, they have odds on DraftKings now of where Dame's going to play next season. Blazers are the favorite, which they probably should be, but it, it's one of those things where Dame has now hinted. Like you know what? I, I if things don't happen the way I want them to happen, I'm okay with leaving. And he's never really said that before before this off season. So, I I really think this off season is just so important of what the Blazers do. They got to choose a direction. They got to choose it by the draft.
1: Yeah, everyone is chasing a championship. Um Damian Lillard says he does not have the appetite for a 19-year-old in a rebuild. Here he is uh, again. Uh, in April. I believe this is on the Dan Patrick show. I don't
3: have much of an appetite for building and you know guys 2 and 3 years away from really going after it, you know what I'm saying? And you know, I think we we get shaden at 19 and he's just different, you know what I'm saying? I think he just being around him his disposition, you know what I mean? His how he listens. Um his frame, his natural talent and his ability. I think, you know, that's, that's a, that's enough 19 year olds, you know what I'm saying? And you probably won't find one that will come along the way he has, but um, you know, I, I'm just not, I just ain't interested in that, you know, being honest. And this, this is not a secret, you know what I mean? I, I want a chance to, to go for it. And if the route is to, to do that, then, you know, that's, you know, that's not my route. So, um, you know, I think we all in line with doing what we got to do to put a team together that we can actually go out there and and get it, get something done. You know what I mean?
1: I want to hear from Blazer fans. Lillard, build around him. Is it build around him because you don't want to see on the court in the next couple of seasons a team that could struggle mightily, even though it would mean – uh, you know, if you got in a trade for Lillard, three first-round draft picks plus young players, and you could pave the way for your future four years from now, three, four, five years from now, and end up in a much better place, would you? Would you do the deal then? Would you, uh, or is it you don't want to trade Damian Lillard because you, out of loyalty to him? And I find that odd. I find the idea that that loyalty to Lillard. Would be a reason to keep Lillard. Like, if you were really thinking about Damian Lillard's best interests, and you're a Blazer fan. Do you believe? Do you believe this team is close? Do you believe there's a move to be made? And if there is a move to be made, that Joe Cronin is the guy to get it. To done, people
4: that say I, that it's yeah. the loyalty, to me, it seems like you're more of a Damian Lillard fan than a Blazer fan, right? Like that's the way I take that. Is you want to see yeah. Damien you, you you know he Dame deserves this. Well, truth. I, I just feel like well, then you're not a Blazer fan. You're a Dame fan. It's
1: truth. I mean, I. I, I, I tend to think there's common ground. Because, and maybe you're you're hitting around it by saying, hey, are you a fan of Lillard or are you a fan of the team? Because I think everybody would love to see the Blazers. Com- I would love to see the Blazers compete and contend next year. I just don't think they're anywhere near it. And I, you can't give me the Lakers and you can't give me the Miami Heat as examples. They're just not good examples of that. All right, 5 o'clock hours ahead. Punch it audio and, and- Update from Taiwan. Anna telling me, uh, by the way, in Taiwan right now, it's it's like uh, it's like seven in the morning. Telling me that her dad is uh, he's on board with uh, at least spending the summer in the state of Oregon. How about that? How about them apples? Maybe we'll send him around as our Taiwanese correspondent. Have him go to all the Pac-12 football stadiums and report back. What, what's, a good sta- <laughs> what's a good stadium? What's a bad stadium? Uh, Anna's dad, interestingly, for those of you who are just tuning in, um, Anna's dad, uh, she's spending some time with him. But when they immigrated from Taiwan to the United States, he he got to pick his name because he had he had a Taiwanese name, and he didn't want to he didn't want to have the Taiwanese name in the United States. And so when he went to be naturalized and get his citizenship. They said, well, what do you want your name to be? And he said uh, he thought, the uh, you know, he picked Wayne as his first name because of John Wayne. Because what's more American than John Wayne? And then his middle name is Christopher for Christopher Columbus. So he's John Wayne Christopher Columbus. There's nothing more American than that. If you could pick, if you could redo your name, what would you pick? Because I've often thought about this. My parents named me John, and John in my generation, you know, there were the Beatles had a John. John F. Kennedy was a John. There were some Johns, and John was a very popular baby name. And, in fact, when you look up those, the you know, when you go to those websites that will tell you popular baby names, and, you know, by year, um, you look at, like, the year I was born, I think, like, it goes like, it, they're all boring names, by the way, Michael was like one of the top names of that era Jason, James, Robert, John, Brian, Matthew, Daniel, like you know, just steady names. there's some biblical uh biblical uh connections there as well. but I have uh, growing up a John there were all, there were multiple Johns in every elementary school class I had. like I didn't like being a John. Because there was John A, there was John C, there was the other John C there were you know like you you know I go into a Starbucks now it's true. and they go I got a iced vanilla latte for John and I watch three guys turn their head and I'm like, yep, that's us. That's what we do. That's why when we named our kids, John and Anna, we named them Graziana, who we call Zia and Sojourner after Sojourner truth and we call her Soji and nobody, Maybe someday, you know, Soji'll be in Starbucks and they'll say Sojourner, and three Sojis will turn around. I don't know. But Steven, you're you're kind of in the same boat. You know, Steven's a very popular name. When uh, if you could repick your name like Anna's dad got to pick, and he went with John Wayne and Christopher Columbus. Um, you know, where, where would you lean? Where does your
4: mind go? I honestly have never thought about this. I <laughs> I, I, That's why you come to the show. Yeah, like I like, I kind of like Steven now. Like you said, like it's more mm. unique nowadays. Um, like my wife's name, her name is Emma. Well, it's Amelia, but she goes by Emma. And there's no one really around our age that is named Emma, but now all the kids are named Emma. Like it's a really popular name, so it's very unique in that way. I, get back to me. I, I don't know. I don't know. I've got to
1: think about this. Wouldn't you, would you, like, you wouldn't go like LeBron? Like Prime?
4: Prime Vaughn? <laughs> it's not terrible.
1: Uh, I always liked the name Xavier, like Xavier McDaniel. (laughs) Thought that was cool. Just for the X? Yeah, because then instead of JC, which is what I ultimately, by the time I was in high school, it was just like, just call me JC. There's too many Johns
4: at this school. And, 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 but I could go by X. Yeah. They'd be like X. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Didn't, the initials thing is big. My wife was big on that because her last name Vaughn, she had to make sure that our kids' names didn't start with a J. So it was JV because she said our kids are varsity.
1: (laughs) You don't want to be JV. And that's a, that's like a real that. story.
4: As, I mean, that's that shows her competitiveness. I like right that.
1: There. There's some creative names out there. And, look, I and I worked in Santa Cruz, California. Uh, one of my first jobs in newspapers at the Santa Cruz Sentinel. You got every hippie in the world that lived in that market. And they had fantastic names on the high school basketball team. You know, there was a Tayo, T-A-Y-O, Tayo. There was, uh, there was Theodosius and they called him Theo. Uh, there was uh, you know, it, there was a there was a Soji there. That's where I got the name. For, you know, we talked about and I said to Soji I said she was Soji How was her name? She was a guard on the basketball girls basketball team. I said, "What do you name?" For? And she said, "My mom named me for Sojin or Truth." And that always stuck with me. And so I told Anna, I said, "You know, how about we name one of our kids for Sojin or Truth?" Pretty cool, like, you know, that would be a, a great nod. And I'll never forget like when Anna was in the hospital giving birth to Soji, um, you know, our anesthesiologist came in and the anesthesiologist was African American. And the nurse that was in the room, they were preparing the birth certificate, whatever, and the nurse said the name Sojourner out, out loud, and the anesthesiologist looked at me and he just nodded. And I thought, you know what? Like, he understands, like, this is a nod to, you know, Sojourner Truth who was an abolitionist and you know, a woman who was born into slavery and fought for her kids and yeah, sued sued uh, sued successfully uh, to free herself and her children. I mean, it's, you know, it's a good, it's a, I feel good about that name. John, I'm in Starbucks and everybody's turning around going, John, which John? Which, what drink did you have? So that's why when I go to Starbucks, I'll just go, put whatever on the cup. And then they'll, they'll go, we've got an iced vanilla latte for whatever. Yes. Let's do the five at five.
3: The five.
1: Steven is going to do the five at five in Anna's uh, absence on today's show. Steven,
4: the number one story as you see it is? The PGA Championship, John. Round one is uh, still wrapping up here. We're not quite done with the round one, but Bryson DeChambeau, he busted out. He's uh, in tied for the lead, minus four. Adam Scott, Dustin Johnson, Eric Cole all in at four under par. But uh, you know the live golfers, Bryson DeChambeau, uh, is this still a big deal, John? have the live golfers golfing in the, in the PGA majors. Um, do we care anymore? Is it, is it just old news?
1: It's, I think it's still, it, some people still really care about it. I, to me, it bothered me more that the live LIV golf tournament was being held, uh, out at pumpkin Ridge. It was more about the geography of it. The, you know, the majors are interesting because, um, you know there are some there are some people. You know the live golfers can still play in the majors. They can still tee it up. But the U.S. Open and the and the Open Championship are tougher because, um, you know they can't they can't get to they can't get the qualifications that they need to get there. Now DeChambeau is such a good golfer, and he proved it today with a 66. Um, you know the number of golfers that were eligible. There was a uh, chart that was put out. This year, and you know the PGA invites the top 100 to for qualification, but there were 46 spots that went to LIV golfers in uh, in this uh, in this tournament. Here's DeShambeau talking about the opening round.
0: I mean, it's a fantastic round of golf on at Oak Hill. It's a prestigious place, very difficult golf course. Um, as I was looking at it throughout the week, I'm like, man, I don't know how shooting under par is even possible out here in some of the uh, golf holes. But luckily I was able to play some really good golf, hit a lot of fairways, uh, do my job, and make some putts.
1: PGA Championship has the easiest path for the LIV golfers because they have special exemptions that probably usually include the top 100 golfers. But the Masters and the Open Championship require you to be top 50 in the world golf rankings. And By the way, you move up on the World Golf Rankings by winning PGA Tour events. And so the LIV golfers, not as uh, prevalent. Um, But, uh, you know, DeChambeau doesn't have to sweat it because he he has uh, an exemption for all four events because he recently won a major. So he's in. The others, you know, maybe some guys that get knocked out that aren't in the top 50, aren't in the top 100 because they don't, they're not playing in PGA events. It'll be interesting to follow that. I think it's less of a story now. It's a major. Like the Triple Crown of Horse Racing, there are peripheral sports fans who only pay attention to the golf majors, and the PGA Championship is one of them. I think it's fun to have a
4: little little bit of rivalry here because yeah. uh, I, I don't really mind the, the Live Golf stuff. I, I think it's okay that they went over there to make the money. Like they, They're doing what they're doing, uh, what's best for their families. So I think it's full fun to have a little rivalry there. Uh, did you uh, see the last Live Golf tournament, though, got cut short? on tv and they uh went to preemptive uh infomercials and the goldberg sitcom and uh they couldn't see the last round so that was uh, live golf not doing great on the cw over there
1: yeah the cw is not built for sports either people who you know are familiar with that network tell me they don't even really have a sports programming side so this is new to them and so i think you're gonna have some hiccups and by the way though there was some hiccups with youtube tv Last night in, in uh, the NBA playoffs, and it's got some NFL fans up in arms as well as people are worried about, you know, the Sunday ticket and what's going to happen if there's any kind of streaming glitch or buffering problems uh, <laughs> moving forward. Yeah. Welcome to welcome to my parents' Wi-Fi situation, essentially. Number two story, as you see it. Miami Heat,
4: Miami Heat, Jimmy Butler, he beat the Celtics last night, take a 1-0 lead in the Eastern Conference. And you know what Jimmy Butler said? He doesn't care that nobody's picking him. How does this feel to you guys, what you have done so far? And if you go back all the way to that night against Chicago and the play-in, did you think then that something like this would be possible?
6: Damn right, I did. Damn right, we did. Um, And the best part about it is we still don't care what none of y'all think. Honestly speaking, Um, we don't care if you pick us to win. We never have, we never will. We know the group of guys we have in his locker room. Um, we know that Coach Bo um, puts so much confidence and belief in each and every one of us. Coach Pat as well. And so our circle's small, but this circle got so much love for one another. Um, we pump constant confidence into everybody. And we right then, we hoop. We play basketball the right way, knowing that we always got a chance.
4: Jimmy Butler, 35 points, seven assists, five rebounds. Celtics still a big-time favorite, though, in the series, John. Uh, Jimmy Butler. How, how good is Jimmy Butler, man? Is he going to carry the heat to the NBA Finals as an eight seed?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's fun. This is good for the league. Uh, we, everything that works in the world of the NFL, the parody, the fact that small market teams feel like they have a shot, You know, all that stuff that we have held up and said, oh, man, the NFL really gets it. We're getting a little bit of that in the NBA playoffs. Now, you're not seeing necessarily like a lot of small market, but Denver being in this and Denver looking formidable is good for the league. Um, having an eight seed and, you know, the Lakers in, they weren't, you know, they, neither one of these teams was a favorite uh, during the regular season, didn't have great records. They had to fight their way into the playoffs and now they continue to fight. I mean, you even look at Miami losing it, you know, that first play in game, like they were that close to going home and being out. And now they're that close uh, to maybe being in it. This is good for the league. This is all good for the league. It's interesting. It's compelling. I like his confidence. Like that said, I still think the Lakers and the Celtics are going to end up in the finals. Am I crazy for saying that the two teams that are down in this series are going to make it?
4: No. I uh, I actually am hoping the Lakers lose tonight, go down 0-2 so I can bet on the Lakers to win the series. I think that's how it's going to go down. Uh, Eric Spolstra said the best thing uh, the the play in is the best thing to happen in the NBA in a decade. I thought that was pretty interesting as well. Yeah, it is good.
1: It, it's helped in a number of ways because it, I think it's created a little competition. And baseball's wild card was a great example of this. When baseball added the additional wild cards, you know, people were like, well, these teams, you know, some of these teams were barely over 500 in the regular season. Well, some of those teams started winning because when you have to fight your way into the wild card position or fight your way into the play in tournament and then fight for survival, you kind of enter the playoffs with that mentality, and you carry it with you. And I think it's been fun to kind of watch them. The number three story is Stephen season The
4: Pac-12, they have added access to their football games next season. They'll have some coaches' interviews, um, different camera angles, you know, in the booth, coaching booth, locker rooms certain players being mic'd up, pregame, uh, a lot of new new stuff is going to be added to Pac-12 broadcast to hopefully liven that up a little bit. Uh, you know, ESPN, Fox will be a part of that. Pac-12 has agreed to all this. The coaches have agreed to all of it. So it seems like this is, uh, this is one of the first things that will happen for the Pac-12 that really hasn't happened in other conferences. I think other conferences will probably follow suit, but uh, Pac-12, more access to their broadcasts uh, this next season.
1: Uh, it's it's going to be fun to see it. Um, I'm not with the people who are saying, hey, these halftime interviews, these sideline in-game interviews, the miking up of coaches and players, it's, it's not interesting. It's not compelling. Uh, you know, it's a thir- it's worthless. I keep hearing that. Uh, give me, uh, you know, the late Mike Leach in a sideline interview during the game. Come on. Uh, I think we're going to find out that some of the coaches in the conference have got some personality. Let it shine. And and for the players, it it gives us a chance to hear players and see players that we wouldn't get to see normally. There's going to be some NIL opportunities attached to this. You better believe it. The, the networks and, uh, you know, not the league itself, but the networks can, can work with different sponsors and different players on highlighting them. Major League Baseball is doing this. Some of it, it feels orchestrated. Some of it feels unnecessary. And some of it is terrific. I'm, I'm a fan of this. I also think it suggests that ESPN and Fox want to be involved with the Pac-12. And I think they're going to try some forward-thinking things across sports. You're not just going to see this in the Pac-12. You're going to see it in the Big 12. You're going to see it in the Big 10 and the SEC, too. This is just kind of the way of the world. They want to take you as a viewer behind the curtain, behind the scenes. It's what I tell you on this show. Like I, what do I want to do? What's my ultimate object, objective on the show? I want to take you somewhere where you can't go. I want to tell you, take you behind the scenes, show you something, inform you, uh, help you understand something. And, and I do that with my writing, too. I want to take you somewhere at johnconzano.com that you, you can't go otherwise. And,
4: and I think television does that very well, and they're trying to do it more and more. I think it's fun. I think it's a good idea to have this. But it's another example of just in sports of we worry about everything else but the actual game. I need the game to look good. I need the game to go smoothly on the broadcast. We're worried more about this extracurricular stuff. In the NBA, we're all worried about the offseason and trades and woge bombs. You know what? I want, to, I want to actually watch the games. I want to watch the teams on the court. I think this is another example of this type of thing. But I, I, there's really no downside to it because I think it could just show some fun uh, fun interactions.
1: Number four in our five at
4: five. What do you got? Uh, we talked about this a little bit in the Punched Audio, but ACC Commissioner Jim Phillips, he wrapped up three days of spring meetings. But he had a message of unity for the ACC, saying the league athletic directors have told him that they're, quote, all in this together and, quote, all the teams in the ACC The week started with reports of seven schools having their own discussions about the league's grant of rights and finding a path forward. But the Commissioner Phillips says ACC will stay intact and they are moving together, uh, moving forward together.
1: Jim Phillips, ACC Commissioner. I think they're trying right now to create some leverage against ESPN or that they can use against ESPN and the threat, the imminent threat that they could peel away or that. They're not on board or that they're going to litigate. You know, I don't think they'll be successful. I don't think they can walk uh, themselves out of that media rights deal that they signed with ESPN. I don't think any court in America is going to accept it. I also don't think they're going to blow up the ACC with those teams having nowhere to go and potentially uh, involve themselves in litigation with with, uh, ESPN in that way. So I think this for now is grandstanding and I think uh, you know we all know they're unhappy, they're holding their breath, they're kicking their feet, they're on the living room floor, but I, I think ESPN's going to go, okay, when you're done throwing a tantrum, let's, let's talk about how we might sprinkle some more revenue on your conference. Let's, let's think about some forward-thinking things instead of trying to unwind a deal that has already
4: been signed. Is there a potential where all this realignment talk, media rights talk, Pac-12 dismantling, Big Ten or Big 12 is dismantling, ACC going away, could it just be a big bunch of nothing where all yes. the only teams that happen to move were USC, UCLA, and that's it? Like those are yes. the only schools that move?
1: Yes. Because, you know, what drives realignment, what drives expansion, it's meteorites deals. There's no meteorites deal for the uh, ACC to, to, to do at this point. There just isn't. Like, you know, they are stuck where they are. They have a deal already, and they're going to have to be happy with it and move forward. So – um, I think that the, the Pac-12 is going to sign their deal. I think they're going to announce it between now and about uh, June 28th, June 29th. Uh, anytime now in the next five weeks, I think we're going to get a resolution on that front. I don't think anyone's leaving. And then I think, uh, you know, that's why I think some of the ACC stuff is popping back up because I think the, the media that was so hyper-focused on the Pac-12 is, is going, okay, there's no more oxygen in that room. Where do we go now? I, do, I think it's a little bit irresponsible. Uh, you know, look, but if the ACC commissioner is talking about it, I don't blame Sports Illustrated. I don't blame The Athletic. I don't blame ESPN for reporting what they're reporting. But let's be real about, you know, the reality of the ACC is they are locked into a deal, and ESPN's not going to come to them and go, okay, we're going to let you out of it because it's, it's, it's a great deal for us and not for you. It's just not going to happen. Number five, what do you got?
4: Uh, nice happy story here. A guy that is much tougher than me, Liam Hendricks, reliever on the Chicago White Sox. Uh, he's has he has stage four non Hodgkin's lymphoma. He is expected to return to the White Sox as early as Monday. He was back in Chicago today. Um, he's been great the last four seasons. One of the best relievers in all of baseball. 114 saves, 2.26 ERA last four years. Liam Hendricks fighting off the cancer and uh, gonna be back with the White Sox. Early next week, just, I mean, what a what a story. What a tough guy right there.
1: Yeah, I mean, that that is what it's all about. We talk about what's important in life. You know, we talk about 71 points in a basketball game or the Miami Heat taking a lead or somebody chasing a home run record. But, you know, we often forget that sometimes these athletes are people. No, all the time they're people. But just sometimes we see them as people. And uh, I think it's one of these cases, you know, that we're looking at now. Uh, Good luck to him and and to his family. All right. Coming up, uh, we will talk about Oregon and Oregon State. I've done enough talk about the Washington schools. I want to drill deeper on the Beavers and the Ducks. Plus, Portland State, I'm disappointed. I'll tell you more why later. I was struck by something uh, that Stephen said earlier. I'll get to the Ducks and the Beavers here in a moment. But, Stephen, you said you were rooting for the lakers to lose game 2 to go down 2 zip to the denver nuggets and then you want to bet them to win the series yeah. because you think they're going to roar back and win it down 2 zip i do you got them in 6 or 7
4: um i think probably 7 and my th- here's my thinking on this is denver is not a very deep team uh they got bruce brown off the bench tristan brown is okay he's a rookie out of kansas uh, I don't think that Denver is very deep. I think they were so reliant on Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray offensively, where they are going to tire down by the end of the series if that makes sense. I think I think the Lakers are so deep that they're playing guys that already they don't they don't have guys on the bench that aren't even playing that I think they can throw in the series and have a game kind of like Lonnie Walker did against the Warriors. Lonnie Walker is now a part of the rotation, but I think they have other guys: Malik Beasley, Troy Brown, like those guys can come off the bench if they really needed them to. And they can make an impact. So I think by the end of this series, and now you know, now this is tougher. It's it's a more physical team. The Nuggets defensively weren't great this season in the regular season. I think the Lakers are just a better team. So I think this game two, I I could see where the Lakers win, but I also think I could also see where Denver comes out and wins this game very, very much like Game One, where you know they were in control for most of this game. I think that could happen, but I I wouldn't count the Lakers out until they lose a home game. So. For me, I hope they lose and I get a better price on them in uh, game three to win the whole series.
1: There you go. There's your logic. So basically you're setting them up for the ambush. Yes. yes. You're waiting
4: for the odds. Yes. And you don't you don't like the odds right now? I, that, I mean, it's okay. It's like plus 240, I want to say, somewhere around there. But uh, okay. I think it can get up to, you know, 300, 340, 350, okay. something like that. So you're going to wait. But yeah.
1: what happens if the Lakers win this uh You know the Lakers win Game Two, then it kind of messes with your plan.
4: It does. It messes with the plan. Then I just don't make a series bet on it. So you know, which is Mm. which sucks because I don't get a bet. Well, what fun is that? So then
1: you just so you just then you don't make any bet at all.
4: Yeah, just no series bet. I just have to go game by game. All right.
1: Well, there you have it. You're welcome to the mind of a degenerate (laughs) gambler.
4: That's how sick my mind is right now, John. That's what that's what I do.
1: (laughs) Uh, I like it, but I wanted, you know, I knew that I wasn't going to be the only one that had a question about
4: it. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I want to talk about the Ducks. I want to talk about the Beavers. And I want to first talk about the non-conference schedule for Oregon and Oregon State because it's evident to me that, um, you know, Oregon is doing something, I think, very strategic with, with scheduling and football. And I think it stems from Rob Mullins, the Oregon athletic director, serving on the college football playoff selection committee. he remember, he was the chair of the committee just a couple of few years ago. He was on that committee. It's it, The playoff is expanding from 4 to 12. I think Mullins and others knew that it was expanding. I think more and more you're hearing conferences talk about trying to either play additional conference games because uh, – they know that they're not going to be uh, a ton of non-conference opponents, crossover games. Like the Power Fives are not going to want to play tough games is what I'm trying to get at. And so, or, or they're going to have to play lousy non-conference schedules because they're unable to get, you know, like Ohio State is, is right now down to play Oregon in 2032 and 2033. I don't believe, I shouldn't say I don't believe, I, I am skeptical that those games are going to happen in 2032 and 2033. Only because I think by then we're going to know that it behooves neither to play each other in a non-conference game. I think that's why they put it so far out, in part because it was tricky to get games. And remember, one of these games was canceled due to the pandemic. supposed to be in Eugene. Ohio State was coming there. But it's on the schedule. I I just don't know. I I don't know if I can see it happening. But look at what Oregon's doing with their non-conference scheduling. I want to dive into this a little bit. Remember, this is Oregon who played Georgia. This is Oregon who's played LSU. This is Oregon who has uh, historically signed on to play a game here, a game there, that is really interesting. And you will remember that uh, Oregon played Auburn with Bo Nix at quarterback for Auburn at AT AT&T Stadium in Mario Cristobal's era. And Dan Lanning's first game was Oregon against Georgia at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. Well, look at Oregon's non-conference schedule this year. It is Portland State at home, at Texas Tech, and Hawaii at home. In 2024, next season in non-conference, the Ducks go to Hawaii, play Idaho at home, play Texas Tech at home, and play Boise State at home. They get the extra non-conference game because they're going to Hawaii, so they get to play that 13th game. 2025, it's Montana State at home and Oklahoma State at home, and at Boise State. 2026, it's Boise State at home, at Oklahoma State, and Portland State at home. You see what they're doing. In 2027, it's at Baylor and Utah State at home. In 2028, it's North Dakota State, Baylor, Utah State. There's no there's no Michigan. There's no Ohio State. There's no LSU. There's no Georgia. Now, I'm not saying those games couldn't be be put together in week zero and you know get an exemption from the ncaa and play an extra game i'm not saying that won't happen but it's evident that oregon's scheduling strategy in non-conference games has shifted you know this you know this is a program that you know just last year again georgia and i can remember chip kelly team going to play lsu we want to play the best and you know, I think some of this has to do with the fact, directly with the fact, that you are looking at an expanded playoff and people are going, hey, you, you don't get into an expanded playoff by losing to Ohio State and Auburn and Michigan. You get there by playing a softer schedule and trying to win all your games, but play the best schedule you can where you think you can go 3-0. and Oregon State, also an example of this. Next season, Oregon State plays at San Jose State at home against UC Davis, at home against San Diego State. That's your non-conference schedule. They're not playing Ohio State like Jonathan Smith did in his first season. You know, it, it, it's, uh, it's interesting. Uh, 2024, it's Idaho State, Boise State, and Purdue at home. Purdue coming to Research Stadium. Not next season, but in 2024. In 2025, it's Portland State, Fresno State at Texas Tech. In 2026, it's Sacramento State, Texas Tech at San Diego State. So you see what's happening. Both Oregon and Oregon State have adjusted. They've tweaked the philosophy. They are going for, hey, um, you know, one really easy game. Apologies to the Big Sky Conference, but UC Davis for Oregon State, Portland State for Oregon next season. One uh, middle-of-the-road game. It's uh, For Oregon State, it's San Jose State. And then, uh, you know, maybe a little tougher game, San Diego State. And for, you know, the Ducks, it's Texas Tech and uh, and, uh, and uh, Hawaii. So this, the philosophy here is go 3-0. and That's it. Go 3-0. And Rob Mullins, I think he learned that by being on the playoff selection committee and looking around and going, hey, man, nobody cares that Alabama didn't play anybody. Alabama won't even go on the road. Nobody cares about that. Because they look at the SEC and they say, that's a really good conference, and if Alabama wins that conference or even comes in second, man, they should probably be in the playoff. They're that good. Well, the Pac-12, I think, is constructing a narrative, especially for this next season, that it's going to have five or six really good teams. And so it behooves everybody to kind of go, let's go 3-0 and in non-conference games, and Let's not play a bunch of uh, games that are going to make us look like we're not that good in the early part of the season. I think there's a definite strategy in play, and I think it is beneficial to the Pac-12. I think they're looking hard at, like, just trying to game the system the best they can. And I know that people got mad at me. I said, you know, even when Mario Cristobal went to Ohio State two years ago and won, I wrote that week, I picked him to win. You know that. Like, if you're a listener of the show, I was the only person out here going, they're going to win this game. Everybody else saying, they're going to the horseshoe. They're going to lose. I said, no, they're going to win it. But they shouldn't be playing it. I wrote that. They're going to win it, but they shouldn't be playing it. They have no reason, no business playing that game. They had no business going to play Georgia other than the $4 million they made to go do it. There was no incentive. There was very little upside to go play that game because you win that game, you still have to go into conference play, and you still have to win your games in order to get to the conference championship and and maybe the four-team playoff. If you lose that game, that's a lot to overcome. Uh, You know, it can be done, but it's a lot to ask. And so – you know, I think what we're going to see is we're going to see an increased opportunity for the Portland states and the UC Davises and the Sacramento states to cash in and get those payday games from the Pac-12 members. And John Wilner and I talked about this on our podcast, Konzano and Wilner, the podcast. We talked about this. You know, Wilner thinks they're going to try to go to a 10-game conference schedule after they expand, which I think the, I'd love to talk to the analytics folks about that. Like I think it's a bad idea, but his logic is, you know, hey, you're going to have more teams, you know, that you know, like the Power 5s aren't going to want to play each other cuz they're not going to want to add losses to their resume. But my my rationale is like I think the more conference games you play, correct me if I'm wrong Matt the petitions, the more opportunities you have to add losses within your conference. I'd rather see the Pac-12 not from a competitive standpoint, not as a season ticket holder, but I'd rather see the Pac-12 try to go 3 and 0 in all these non-conference schedules. And you know, play a play a Big 12 opponent, play a middle of the road or below Big 10 opponent. If you're going to play an SEC opponent, they better not be Georgia, Alabama, LSU, Auburn. I don't want to see those teams. But, you know, if you want to you want to get Vanderbilt in there, okay. You want to play Mississippi State, I'm okay with that. But I think they're going to see the scheduling changes in the way people think and the way people schedule shift dramatically. And I won't be surprised if the winners, the ultimate winners in this equation end up being, like, you know, the mid-major programs who now can say, all right, instead of $550,000 to play that payday game, we want uh, a million five. And uh, we'll play every year if you give us a million five because – you know as as Bruce Barnum has told us on the show the Portland State football coach you know Alabama called they wanted a game and i think he said all right 2 million bucks Alabama said uh, we'll get back to you never called back but i i think the you know we've seen those payday games escalate from 250,000 to 400,000 to 500,000 to 750,000 some of these programs are getting a million dollars now to play those games i think it's going to keep going because now there is a bigger demand from SEC Big 10 Big 12 and Pac-12 teams that need to play these games, and they don't want to play each other necessarily, especially with an expanded playoff. Keep it here. Why I'm disappointed in Portland State. I'm just shaking my head at the Vikings. Man, I I, I want the Vikings to be good. I feel like, uh, you know, Michael Corleone. You know, I try to get out. In the You know, anyway, leave it here. Portland State uh, meandering along. I've got a soft spot in my heart for Portland State. I don't know if you have it, but I look at, um, you know, I, maybe because I grew up rooting for San Jose State, and at the time San Jose State was in the PC2A, the Pacific Coast Athletic Association, now uh, not, uh, not, a, not alive. It's now defunct. But uh, I can remember San Jose State playing uh, University of Pacific and UNLV and, um, you know, I can't even remember all the schools that were in there, but I, I just we had season tickets. It was 1979, 1980. Dennis Erickson was the offensive coordinator. Jack Elway was the head coach. Dick Vermeil was on a staff there at San Jose State. It was uh, those were good times, um, and for me, and but I, I was well aware that San Jose State was not a Pac-12 team. You know, they they weren't academically, they weren't athletically, they weren't, and. You know, I look at Portland State, and I go, okay, there's a place in the ecosystem for Portland State. And I talked about it last segment. I think those schools that are in the Big Sky Conference are are at least well positioned from the standpoint of um, look if you are a uh, if you're a Big Sky team, you are going to be in demand. You're going to they're going to have to schedule you. And um, I think, look, if you're out there right now and you're driving and you're tuning in, you've had a long day at work, and, you know, I'm here to entertain you on your way home, here's what I'm going to say to you. I didn't like when Portland State hired their athletic director this last cycle. And I didn't have a qualm with who they hired, but I felt like the president at Portland State at the time, Stephen Piercy, was making a hire that was, you know, let's just hire the person who's going to come in and status quo it. I don't want anybody rocking the boat. And they hired an administrator who had been at Washington State and at Nebraska, John Johnson, he's been on this show. Um, They hired somebody who I think is in the twilight of his career. I think, you know, he would admit that that's where he is. And... I expected maybe that maybe they were going to come in and try to like market or launch some kind of campaign or explore a stadium. Like Portland State needs a football stadium. They're playing out in Hillsboro. Um, you know, it, I have just seen nothing, nothing that is going to disrupt the marketplace. Um, I have seen nothing that is going to suggest that Portland State is here to win and to matter. And I don't, I'm not going to put it on, I, you know, I'm not going to put it on John Johnson all the way himself because I think he's working within an administrative standpoint, or a structure at, at Portland State that is incredibly difficult to work in. The athletic department. As much as we all know that it you know, it could be the front porch of your university, at Portland State, I think the administration on campus there has largely looked at the athletic department as a nuisance. They don't understand it. They don't see how advantageous it can be. They do not see where it fits in the community. Uh, but I'm waiting for Portland State. Have they done a marketing outreach? Have they come up with an idea? Have they engaged any more fans? Do they have a plan? Like, as, you know, as long as we are uh, banging on the Blazers for not having a plan, what's the plan at Portland State? I would really like to know. What are they doing? Are they doing something forward-thinking? Are they getting outside the box? Um, you know? You, you know, basically, um, if you are somebody who is essentially – out there trying to, uh, believe in Portland state or looking for a reason to engage with Portland state. I don't think they're giving you one yet. Bruce Barnum's good. He's great on air. I think the ecosystem needs Portland state, especially in our state where we've got high school kids who want to play football that may not be PAC 12 level players. There's a spot for kids in our state who are good high school players to get to that level. Um, but I don't think that Portland State understands how to get to people, how to reach you, how to reach me, how to engage you, how to engage me, how to make us get excited about the athletic department. And, and I want to be on board. Like, I like Jace Coburn, the men's basketball coach. I think, I, I, you know, I think Kelsey Gregg, the women's basketball coach, solid, really solid. They've got some good things that they're selling there. I like Bruce Barnum. Yeah, I bring him on this show. I believe in what he's in what he's doing. So within the ecosystem, you have some positive things that you could really build on that could flourish. And I get it. I know what you're going to say. You're going to tell me, "Hey, the uh, campus, the university doesn't have, um, you know, doesn't have the backing of their front off front office. They don't have the backing of the administration." That, you know, how can you win successfully? How can John Johnson, the athletic director at Portland State, really get anything done if he doesn't have the backing of the rest of his campus? And that's a real problem. But you know what? That's his job. It's his job to go out and get the rest of the campus excited about it. It's his job to be forward-thinking and, you know, go to the university president and sell the idea that athletics can, can not just pay for itself, but athletics can be part of the community experience at portland state we all know pac-12 schools are selling that on their own campuses they're selling the idea that student fees and i think they're successfully selling the idea that student fees that you know support athletics and support mental health and support student services all walk hand in hand and and i think that's real and i believe in that like i do think that if you are at oregon oregon state arizona state arizona you know, we'll use those as examples. Washington, Washington State. Let's use those examples. I think if you're a student on those campuses and you're paying student fees that support the athletic department, and you're paying student fees that support student health services, mental health, and you're paying student fees that, you know, support, you know, single moms who, you know, need child care during school hours. Like you're you're paying a variety. you're paying for a variety of things in those fees. But I think athletics is glue on a campus and and at most campuses you look around at football games and basketball games and you see students who have said you know what I'm getting this ticket these are my classmates that are playing this is a fun social thing whatever reason draws you in as a sports fan this is a uh, positive thing and I want to be here and I want to be part of it whatever it is that brings you into the fold the, the fact is you're in the fold and what I think Portland State misses by not embracing athletics is they miss the idea that those sports teams aren't just your front porch. They aren't just marketing your university. And be real, you can measure. There is a direct correlation between success in men's basketball and in football in particular. Uh, There's a direct correlation with success in those two sports and enrollment and applications the very following year, and it goes for Portland State as well. When Ken Bone took Portland State to the NCAA tournament and they played Kansas in the opening round, uh, there was a whole bunch of enthusiasm and excitement for Portland State athletics, and you saw an uptick in applications. You saw an uptick in interest. There was suddenly a little more pride around Portland State and it very quickly went away, and they just haven't sustained it. They haven't done it. Pokey Allen did it back in the day. He created some pride, he created an atmosphere, he created culture, they haven't done it. The university administration has not bought into it, they do not embrace it, and you know what they miss out on? It's not just, uh, hey, this is a feel-good marketing thing, teams are good, we're investing in it a little bit, student fees are going towards this stuff, it's not just that. What happens when those students graduate and they go off into the world? You know what they want to do? They feel so good about their university and the degree and the experience they had and and they see sports being part of it, what do they do? They open their checkbooks, and they become part of the Alumni Association, and they become a season ticket holder, and they write a check to the university. Sometimes it's a small check. Sometimes it's a big check. But I know some of these donors at Oregon, Oregon State, Washington State. You know, one of my good friends is a big-time donor at, at Washington State, and you know, he writes big checks to Washington State. He lives in the Portland metropolitan area but he has a very fond affinity and association with all things Cougar because it was a good time for him as a student. He didn't play football there. you know. His parents attended school there, and he has a positive association for the athletic department and the university, and as a result, he's writing $500,000 checks to Washington State. Washington State doesn't have that if they're not, fostering a connection between their sports programs and their campus. And Portland State for whatever reason has has fostered a grand canyon disconnect between the athletic department and the university campus. So much so that it feels like they're at odds. And I think that's why the hire of John Johnson as the athletic director just a year year and a year ago, whatever he's on the job, it disappointed me because I think the administration at Portland State hired the candidate that was, dare I say it, not going to rock the boat, not going to cause them problems, not going to beat the drum, bang the drum, come up with a unique idea. I like John Johnson as a person, but for crying out loud, can you think of one thing in the last year that Portland State has done on the marketing or outreach, an idea, a plan, fan engagement, anything? It's just been crickets. Been crickets. It's disappointing to me. Sorry to say it, you know. And and you know, what? John Johnson's is going to hear this. Going to think I don't like him. It's not personal. That's not it. I don't blame him for taking the job. But I think Stephen Piercy, who was the the decision maker at the time, was uh, eyeing the door, going, "I'm out of here. Who can I hire? Is not going to cause me a headache." You know. Look, we've all done it. We've all done it. You know. Let me get, let me go with a path of least resistance. I'm not in the mood for this today. Like that's what the, that's what that hire was. It's unfortunate because Jace Coburn, the men's basketball coach, and Kelsey Gregg, the women's basketball coach, and Bruce Barnum, the football coach, they're all good coaches, and they could win, and they could win big, and they could help that university if that university believed it was worth the damn to invest in them. Uh, but here we are, a year later, status quo. We're back tomorrow with another great show. I appreciate you being here for it. The Bald Face Truth is not here for a long time; just a good time.